Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, October 6, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Hey. Good morning, Royal <laughs> Rev of Radio. What does that mean, hey? Good morning. I'm very tired. What, we get tired at 6.05 in the morning? Yes. Got a long way to go. Just the beginning of the day I mean, here. The, the, the younger generation, wow. I mean, I'll just leave it there. The younger generation, wow. Fair enough? I told Rev yesterday, Josh. I told Rev yesterday. <laughs> my son has entered, my, my oldest kid has entered into some management program down in Horry County. And he's getting in a certain business that he knows nothing about, but he's trying to make his way. I mean, he wants to, it's something he's passionate about. He really wants to do it. He likes living down there. And it's job security in this field down there. Uh, I told Rev yesterday, I said, man, I talked to him and I said, dude, when Rev and I had to get out and compete, we had to compete with a lot of competitive people. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not the case anymore. There is a, um, I don't know, Josh, and I'm not accusing you of this. Certainly, you're here. Never miss. And uh, and if something happens, you let us know. That's odd for someone, for someone your age. <laughs> Rare and but, but very no, good. I mean, and, and this really goes back to something we talked about yesterday, stimulating the economy and paying people to do nothing and, you know, the, the, the work ethic of Americans. I mean, there's kind of a macro uh, debate to have about that. But there's no doubt that there's a. I mean, I'm not. I'm not picking on generations. But I, I raise my hand. You ready? Um, I'm guilty as charged that my generation has been responsible for the most irresponsible spending spree in human history. I am a baby boomer. We have added debt to our federal deficit that we should all be ashamed of. In all honesty, in some weird way, should be charged with crime. I mean, we really should. The irresponsible and reckless behavior of my generation, Josh's generation, to do that, right? I mean, I, my, you know, I'm last year the baby boomers. We are the generation that were so gluttonous and expecting of whatever it is um, was on the other side of the American dream that we just, and I can I, I can hear people that well, I paid into Social Security and I paid into Medicare and I and I want what I'm t- entitled to. Fair enough, you did, but the model's broken. And you're going to receive more benefit now. And we can talk about reforming Social Security. We kind of had a, an interesting conversation yesterday with someone about remodeling, you know, for younger people. I like that idea. I like mm-hmm. uh, that concept. I read a good bit yesterday about the the issue we talked about. But let's go back to this because I, I mean, guys, I've said and I preach to the choir until I'm blue in the face. That you're going to freak us out again today? Well, I mean, no, I'm not trying to freak anybody out. But here's what I want to say, and I and I mean this sincerely. Does the southern border matter? Of course. Absolutely it matters. Does the COVID pandemic matter? Yes. Um, does reforming Social Security and medic? Yes, all those matter. But there's nothing that matters more than our debt. I mean, I've said debt, energy, security. Our, our debt, that the policies we adopt to deal with the ever-growing debt and our ability to become energy independent are going to dictate the fate and future of the rest of Josh's life. The rest of my kids' life. They will live in an America that excels or not based on how we deal with debt and what we do in regards to energy. There's always going to be a problem at the southern border. There, there's always going to be drug cartels in, in Mexico. There's always going to be Americans who want to get their hands on illicit substances. I mean, you're not going to take the human condition out of uh, the American public. You just aren't. We're always going to be <sighs> subject to make these sorts of mistakes. But these are macro guys. I mean, th- these are tremendous problems this country are headwinds. 
this country is going to encounter, and it's going to fundamentally change the way Josh and my kids live their lives. And we've got to get serious about this issue. And I'll tell you, I wake up this morning after reading as much as I did yesterday about the conversation I tried to have. I don't know if we did or not, because I think a lot of people scratch their head. Man, I don't understand that. I mean, that's in the weeds. You're talking about M2 money supply? I, I turn you off. I mean, you, you're out there. I mean, you, you've lost me. You probably lost yourself. You're just good enough to fake it. Um, but but in all honesty, you, when we go down that road, it gets too, here's my word. You ready? It's too weedy. I mean, it's just like, wow, dude. I mean, that, that's complicated. That's real complicated. Let's break it down to a text, okay? Because I sent a text with a buddy of mine who lives in this world. He's a banker. I mean, he understands the fundamentals of finance, so to speak. Um, and I sent him a text. He said, Please explain to me what you were trying to explain to your audience yesterday morning. I heard a bit. And I said, here's my exact text. You ready? And I sent this to a couple of other friendlies of mine. This gets in the weeds real quick, but here it goes. The M2 money supply was $15 trillion before COVID. Let's stop there. What is the M2 money supply, Rev? Were you M- paying attention? Uh, I was paying okay. attention. The M2 money supply is what? That's like savings accounts, money markets, uh, money that's kind of parked, if for lack of a better word. The right? M1 money supply is cash in circulation. Yep. That's you getting your paycheck, you go to the grocery store. Paying bills. That's right. That, that's the money in circulation. See, I was. The M2 is that plus CDs, money markets, savings. It's money that Rev has accessible, but he'd rather not spend it. But, but if something happens, I mean, if this kid needs help or he has some unexpected expense at his house, HVAC goes out, Rev goes in that savings account, money market, or, or, or CD, and, and pulls out what he needs to keep his cash flow going, keep his household going. So that's M2. Now, M3 is, and, and we're not talking about M3. M3 is the money Goldman has at, at the Fed. I mean, it's all deposits. It's crazy money. It's um, it's J.P. Morgan's International Bank Fund. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's... But M2 is what we pay attention to because if Rev's HVAC goes out and he doesn't have the money in his checking account, he ain't going to sit in the hot or cold. But he's going he's gonna to fix it some way, somehow. So that money, once again, does at some percentage circulate in the normal economy. And in our, in our truck body business life, and I talk a lot about that recently, in our truck body business life, we kept the line of credit. Now, I'm not going to say on the radio what we called it, but it was our crap happens fund. <laughs> I mean, we knew things were going to happen, and we knew the cash flow of the business sometimes got strained if we took care of. I mean, a, a weird, I'll tell you something that weird happened one day. On Wednesday, a forklift broke down, put us one short. We can kind of sort of deal with that, but it's not as, we're not as efficient and productive. But on Friday, another one went down. Well, I mean, we didn't expect that. We expect one forklift every six months, two forklifts in a week. Mm, okay, I mean, that's a big lick. And I'm not talking about a $2,000 forklift. I'm talking about a forty, fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment. So there's a hundred grand unexpected expense that comes in two days. So that's the line of credit. That's the crap happens. But we gotta have forklifts. So so that would be the M2 money supply that I'm talking about. So the M2 money supply was fifteen trillion dollars before COVID. The Fed increased it to twenty-two trillion via all the stimulus. Now the Fed is quantitative tightening. We talked about that several months back, that they were at the precipice of quantitative tightening. They've tightened to the point of $20.5 trillion. So they've taken $1.5 trillion of liquidity out of the economy. 
and nothing has happened to inflation. And they're all scratching their heads saying, what? I mean, why? Well, I mean, I, I think I know the answer because they underestimated the infusion of $7 trillion. And now they've, and, and what's happening, guys, is this happened in 1930. But prices dropped. Prices fell. Inflation became just, you know, a thing of the past. I mean, it, you know, the, the car that was $1,000 that went to $1,600 went back to $1,000. That's not happening now. And economists are scratching their head. Now, now here's where Peter Thiel comes in. You ready? Thiel says that he believes it's going to take interest rates near 20% to curtail inflation, and that would lead to roughly 15% unemployment. That sounds to me like we made the biggest financial mistake in human history, and we're going to pay the price. Now, Now, add this. You ready? You want a cherry on top? Guess what the deficit is this year? Two trillion. What? I mean, we're, we're quantitative tightening, mm-hmm. and and we're simultaneously adding to the debt. So, see, I'm not an economist, but I'm saying, okay, if the if the Fed is quantitative tightening to the tune of four point one percent over whatever period of time that is, from twenty two to twenty point five trillion, well, how are they accounting for the extra two trillion? that the government spent this year that we don't have. Are we really quantitative tightening? See, that's right. the problem, I think, inflation. The, the, the quantitative tightening is taking money out of the economy. The borrowing at the federal level is putting money back in the economy. And, and we're in a vicious cycle. And, and I'm less, and, I, and I'll say this, and I guess I'm trying to provoke a, a stimulated conversation this morning. I'm less of a Trump supporter today than I was Monday. Okay, explain. He has no interest in that. He has no interest in the debt. <laughs> Do you disagree? I haven't heard him talk about it much. <laughs> I will say. That's being kind and gracious. <laughs> Let me tell you what Trump did. Very few people know this because you don't pay attention like I do. And I don't want to beat him up. Trump wanted the $2 trillion first cares bill to be passed by unanimous consent. He wanted Pelosi to make a motion to spend $2 trillion and the House not vote on it because he didn't want the baggage of being in charge of a $2 trillion spending bill. I mean, imagine that. That concerns me, guys. I mean, I'm still Trump because I still want to be a part of the revolution, the political realignment, the generational realignment of American politics. But that doesn't concern you. I mean, if debt is that big a deal, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe debt's not that big a deal. Maybe Peter Thiel is, is, is a gay dummy. Maybe I'm a straight dummy. I mean, maybe uh, I mean he's got a far he's got four more skin in the game and and you know more homes and uh, you know probably a more uh, luxurious lifestyle than I do. But everything is proportional, everything is relative, as we like to say. I mean, he's got a lot of skin in the game. Maybe I'm a nut. Maybe Teal's a nut. I don't know. Maybe some of these other um, economists. Well, no, no economists believe that. They just like to kind of you know. Um, what was it that Greenspan said at 87 that I read last night? So, um, if you think you understood what I said clearly, then you misunderstood me. <laughs> he appeared before Senate, he appeared before a congressional subcommittee and said that. If you think you understood me as clearly as you think you did, you obviously misunderstood mm-hmm. me. I mean, that, that, that's such a great line for an economist. I mean, it didn't, that, that's such a great line, but, but see, see, Rev's a little like, wow. Okay. 
Trump wanted the $2 trillion First Cares Act to be passed by unanimous consent. Went to see Pelosi and basically argued, hey, you Democrats spend the hell out of money anyway. <laughs> you know, I, I don't need my name on that. I don't, I don't need to come down here and lobby votes. You know how some of these conservative Republicans are. I mean, they'll be hardliners, and then I got to twist their home for more spending, and I don't want to do that. I mean, I mean, it's smart politically. I mean, it really and truly is. And um, but but very few people know that. And I didn't want to say it because I like to, I don't like to to throw the president in bad light. I like to, or the former president. I like to put him in a in a positive light. But I remember when he did it, and, and you know, uh, it's been, it's not been wildly reported, but he well, I mean, but he paid Pelosi. I mean, I know this to be true. I'm not making this up. He paid Pelosi a visit and tried to get her to pass the $2 trillion CARES Act. The first CARES, not CARES 2, the first CARES. CARES 1, he tried to get that passed by unanimous consent. Not a single member of Congress on the record voting for $2 trillion, and Trump was going to be cool with it. But you remember, that was at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, People were freaking out, not knowing what to do. That was the first kind of No, he knew exactly response. what to do. He knew exactly what to do. Put it on the back of the Democrat speaker yeah. because the Democrats are, I mean, they're big spenders anyway. Yeah. And he's a Republican president and he didn't want to be a part of going down twisting arms. You know, you've seen presidents go to the Capitol on things they sure. really want, things they support and believe in. And can you imagine a Republican president walking over to Capitol Hill or, or you know, in one of these car caravans on his way over, the, over to Capitol Hill? What's the president going for to convince Congress to spend $2 trillion? In the name of um, pandemic relief, COVID relief, he didn't want any part of that. And I get it. I mean, that's smart politics. But it's dangerous for the nation. Extremely dangerous for the nation. So if we're quantitative tightening to the tune of $1.5 trillion, but we're putting a couple of trillion back into the economy via deficit spending, are we really quantitative tightening? I mean, is that the reason inflation has not responded favorably? to what we're trying to do in taking money or liquidity out of the economy. It's just, it's, it's a conundrum. It's a big conundrum. It could be a permanent conundrum. Teal says we permanently damage the economy because, because you know how you whisper things under your breath when you watch something, when he, when he said that, I, here I am. You ready? My man said permanent. Permanently. My man said permanent. <laughs> Permanent's a long time. And mm. Josh, <laughs> Very. Yeah, very long time. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, and, and I mean what I said about I would be, I'm less of a Trump voter today than I was three days ago when I started down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out how problematic it is going to be, what is happening exactly. I mean, you hear a lot of uh, conflicting reports, and I'll tell you the last place to find the truth is CNBC or Bloomberg <laughs> or the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it's not called the Main Street Journal. It's called it's called the Wall Street <laughs> Journal for a reason. It's the financial news network for a reason. Um, you know, Bloomberg is one of these all-encompassing financial um, empires, so to speak, and it's not. they're not going to tell you the truth. I mean, they're going to propagandize, and I get it. I mean, they've got a motivation. They've got self-preservation uh, in mind. But but I, I just sense, and, and we talked about this, re I just sense that there is a more of an awareness about the problems our debt could create than there ever has been. I mean, would you agree to that? I mean, well, it's, and, it, and the debt is more than it ever has been, so yes. 
I do. Well, I mean, and, and I don't know if the number 30 trillion alarmed people. We always wondered what the number we was. And we, of course, 30 trillion was way off in the distance. Oh, man, if we ever would hit 30 trillion, well, I can't imagine what might happen. And here we are. We're, we're past it. But, it, okay, if you were running for office today, you ran for president or Congress or whatever, we, I mean, I think we can agree that there, we've got a problem. But do you have any idea of what you would do, well, what you would propose, or what you would do if you I mean, got elected? There's, there's no single answer. I mean, it's not a one-stop shop. The first thing you've got to do, and I would encourage, if I were the president and I were running, well, if I'm running for president, we're going to balance the budget next year, whatever that takes, what everything is on the table. I'm going to get the smartest Republicans, and, and if I can find a smart Democrat, uh, you know, I'm cutting, I mean, there's some smart Democrats. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not interested in cutting spending. But, but I would I would try my best to put a bipartisan. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd involve the business community. I mean, I'm talking about Peter Thiel's of the world, not, not, not sunshine pumpers, you know, not snake oil salesmen. I'd find smart people who, who understand finance and business and the kind of the, um, the entanglement of government and business, and we'd sit in a room, and the first thing I would do is, look, we, we've got $4.9 trillion coming in next year. That's what our budget estimates are. That's what we've got to spend. Now, whatever it takes to to not exceed that number. Now, now I may. I mean, I, and and, I, and I, see, this is where I think it gets even more challenging. Let's say that we come up with entitlement reform for Josh's generation. Let's say that instead of Josh receiving full benefit at sixty nine, he has to work till seventy two. I mean, that changes the spending curve, but it doesn't change the here and now. It doesn't stop recipients from receiving their benefits today. So Medicare, you know, chugs along. Medicaid chugs along uh social security chugs along it does change the spending curve and, and out in the, on the horizon there's a more optimistic view of debt and can we balance the budget but but we got to get after it more aggressively than that and and that's where it gets problematic um do we consider i mean i looked yesterday china owns about a trillion dollars of our debt the majority of our debt 75 percent of our debt is owned by domestic and foreign investors not governments Japan owns more than China. Um, together, they own about $2 trillion of the $33 trillion of our debt, but about 75 to 80% of our debt is owned by domestic and foreign investors. I mean, it would be uh, you know, mutual funds. I mean, you know, bond funds. I mean, there's a lot of um, 30-year T-bills, 10-year, you know, you saw all these investments in into America, short-term, uh, short-term debt, long-term debt. Um but but that's you know I would imagine a lot of J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, but they they invest a lot in in the faith and future of America. They park money in certain places. I would imagine. Well, I mean, obviously it's more lucrative now. You know, I mean, if you run in a hundred billion dollar fund and you want real safe and secure investments, you know, you you worry about the market. It's time to get out of the market. You worry about interest rates having a negative effect on on the economy. You park your money. Uh, you know, you buy T bills. Well, you're an investor. You're an investor in the American. I mean, you are a debt holder of the American government. So, um, you know, 70, I think the number is actually about 78% of all debt, all American debt is owned by domestic and foreign investors. Some of it is intra-government debt. The moving of money from, you know, certain funds, Social Security Trust Fund has been raided at times. Um, and I guess it does get complicated. But but the thing that I would do is I would try to, and I don't know how you get there now. I really don't because so much of the money is on autopilot. You've got to pay the interest on debt, right? You, I mean, you, are, are we going to? Are you? Are you really believing that anybody in Washington is going to tell a 67-year-old man who's worked all of his life 
that you're not going to get but 75% of your Social Security next month. I mean, that's what yeah. it takes. I mean, if you want to fix it, that's what it takes. But who's going to do that? So, so, so we, can, we can address the spending curve by sending Josh a letter from the Social Security Administration saying, Josh, we made a deal, but we're not going to be able to honor that deal. We're, we're going, we, we made you a promise that at 69 years old, you could retire or you could receive this much benefit. And, and you know, you can't get that much. You're going to have to work to be 72 or 73 or whatever that, whatever that new number is. you got to get after some of those actuaries and find out where it lies. But that would be the first thing I would do, Reb, is admit that we're drunk sailors. And, and nobody's been able to say no. And, and look the American people in the eyes and say, look, nobody likes this. I mean, nobody wants to do this. But here we are. And, we, you know, we, we've kicked the can, excuse me, the proverbial can, until it's a 55-gallon drum, and we can't kick it anymore. And, and, and if we don't do that, I, I'm afraid. I mean, I, I'm really and truly nervous. I mean, I, I told a friend last night, you know, uh, I mean, being in the business community, I, I don't just host a radio show. You know that. I mean, I've got some, some interest out there, some ancillary ways I make, I make and generate income, and it includes borrowing money. And it, it's going to be it, interest rates matter a lot to me. And I told a friend last night, I said, you know, I'm going to get smoked in some of these things, man. What do you mean? I said, well, my dad said sometime you eat chicken, sometime you eat feathers. I'm going to be a damn peacock by this time, <laughs> by this time next year, oh, no. if this thing continues uh, the way it's going. But it's just, I mean, it, it's, there's nothing to like about it. I mean, there's, there's nothing to be encouraged about. And, and it's hard to say, you know, well, we need to pay attention to the border. Uh, I mean, I, I'm t- it needs to be all hands on deck with, with the debt. I just believe that. I mean, I'm not saying you can neglect the border, neglect, you know, uh, some of these other programs. I mean, education, infrastructure, government has a role, public safety, uh, defense. I mean, government has a role in, in prioritizing some things over others, but I don't think anything is anywhere near as important. Uh, in other words, if, if, um, if the importance in government spending and, and government awareness is a circle, and the circle is 100%, I think debt's 75% of it. But I think debt is, it's, we, we should spend 75% of our attention, resources, and abilities figuring out a plan uh, to address the debt because we're there. I mean, I think we're there. And I think, I think the man on the street is starting to become aware. The Seinfeld watcher are saying, I, I, I went to the bank trying to borrow some money, and it was, you know, I'd borrowed money to buy a car last year, and it was 5%. I borrowed money to buy a car this year, and it was 8.5%. What's going on with that? What's going on with that? Well, you know, they got all this inflation, man. They printed all this money and they're trying to jack up rates to slow down the economy and deal with inflation. And he goes like, do what? I mean, yeah, they spent, I mean, you know, again, I mean, he doesn't know the M2 money supply went from 15 to 22 trillion. I mean, he doesn't, and he wouldn't understand that. He's not supposed to. That's not his, his gig. I mean, that's, that's the economist and the Fed and CNBC and some of these others. But, um, but I just, I love what Trump brings to the table as a disruptor. I love what he brings to the table in his unpredictability. But but I knew that that he had and, and you, you said you didn't know that. Does it change your feelings of Trump? Uh, not really. Okay, not really. So you're not that worried about the debt? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said it doesn't change my feelings about Trump. Okay, again. Early in 2020 was a different time than it is now. I'll just put it that way. How about you, Josh? I mean, obviously the debt is an issue, but I think we have more important issues. I th- than the debt. 
Yes. I think that the debt is downstream from other things. And, you know, like I, you know, I get Democrat spending, but frankly, you know, I, I know that Trump trying to buy votes with uh, stimulus money back in 2020, not good for the, you know, not good for the debt, not great for the economy or, you know, or whatever in the long run. But I'm okay with buying votes. You know, I mean, what for now, what's China going to do? And I get, you know, things are going to be things are going to be bad, but they're going to be worse if we don't win elections. I'm still waiting on you to tell me what's more important than the debt. I understand why Trump did what he did. I told you I did. I perfectly understand a Republican president doesn't need to go to the Capitol to twist arms to convince other Republicans to vote for two trillion dollars in stimulus. I mean, it revs right. It was crazy times. Everybody's nervous, don't know what to do, shutting down businesses. You got to, you know, repay these employees and keep the businesses whole. And I mean, I understand it. I'm well aware of why we did it, but but there was no vote. I mean, well, there was a vote because I don't think Pelosi would let Trump off the hook. I mean, she knew what he was doing. Um, I, I, I'm still, we're going to take a break. So that gives you <laughs> some time to think, but I want you to tell me what you believe is more important than our federal debt. Back in a few. Without further ado, Brother Josh. Yes. <laughs> you want to know. Bigger deal than debt. Uh, at the moment, I think, you know, there's a lot of things, but the first thing that came to mind when you asked was immigration. Okay. I okay. think uh, the effect that all of these illegals coming in is having on the economy and the future of the nation is worse. You know, by that point, the debt won't matter. Is it possible to deport illegal immigrants is it possible of course but it, it, let's just stop there <laughs> is it possible to unborrow a dollar uh no okay uh but pay it back. so one is a fixable problem the other may not be that's my well, concern immigration if, if is a you huge think the, problem if you think the only solution is to unborrow the dollar and, you know, I don't know what this would entail, but I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm no economist and I'm no war strategist, but what if, what if we just said, nah, we're, we're not going to pay it back. We don't owe you anything anymore. Well, it, we, we can't pay it back. Exactly. It, it, it's financially it's impossible. Yeah. It, it, it's funny money. It's monopoly money, but, but it's on our books. It's on our balance sheet. The only thing I'll disagree with you and, and I tried you can clean up immigration pretty quickly. I mean, if you make your mind up, we're going to secure the border and deport people who shouldn't be here, we can do that. I mean, those are real human beings. We can get our hands, not on all of them, but, but some, and we can get back where they came from and stop them from coming. That's humanly possible. You can't unborrow that dollar. So, I mean, we can write the debt off. I mean, we, you know, we can say, hey, I'm sorry, we can't pay you and aren't going to pay you. But, but that's, that's I, I don't dispute the importance of immigration I just think the debt is more transformative. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Olanta. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Ken. Um, I was going to try to help Josh answer that question right there. I, I think if you want to fix the national debt problem, you got to first fix the national spending problem. Um, I think our government has a, a spending problem, um, and with that's going to come some hungry people. And by that, I mean some starving people. And, uh, and it's time that the government steps out and let people be responsible for themselves. 
let people be responsible for feeding themselves, taking care of themselves, and the government quit doing it for them. I'll take it off the air. Thank you. Well, I, mean, I, I agree with you. It, it, we've never, ever, ever had and will never, ever have enough money to make everybody happy and comfortable. That's not the role of government. Never has been the role of government. Never will be the role of government. And if you accept that responsibility of taking care of people who should be taking care of themselves, you wake up one day $33 trillion in debt, scratching your head, wondering what in the world to do now. Let's go to the phone. Birds in Florence, good morning. Good morning. Well, I was calling to help Josh out, too, but I'm glad to hear it's it's on the right track. You know, Josh got it right. Your caller's got it right. The first thing we got to do is, is seal the border. We have to seal. And I'm not talking about only legal immigration. I'm talking about no immigration and remove the ones that are here and not back to their home country. No, no. Mexico let them cross to come across our border put them right back in Mexico and let Mexico deal with them because they allowed this to happen. So put them right over the border and arm the border. That's the number one problem. And the number two problem is go back to the constitution where government wasn't expected to just take care of everybody from cradle to grave, because that is not the way the country works. And as far as all the money we've racked up, it's all unconstitutional and should be declared null and void. We don't owe any of it, period. Wipe it out. It should have never been done. We, we have been borrowing money from our grandchildren and even great-grandchildren, and they have not had representation. The Constitution is very clear about you cannot have anything go on without some kind of representation, and they are not even born yet. How can they have representation? So it's all null and void. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Daphne and Dylan. Hello, Daphne. You're on. I'm great this morning. I wanted to make Josh's case for him. Uh, the debt is important, uh, Ken, but without the right people in Congress to deal with it, we will not get anything done about it. So, therefore, the plan by the Democrats to flood America with illegals and pressure them into letting them stay and vote would never, never, ever solve our debt problem. So there you go. When you can't solve one without doing the other first, you have a conundrum. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. 843 Another call. Let's go there. A lot of ideas here. Big Al in Florence. Morning, Al. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, of course, uh, our debts are a massive problem, and illegal aliens invading our country is another massive problem. But if we don't fix election integrity, it, none of it matters. We'll never have another say or voice if we don't fix in, uh, election integrity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look, I'm not understating any of the issues you guys are bringing up. And thank you for calling in. I mean, there's no right answer to this. There's opinionated answers, and I have an opinion. I just, I don't think that, I mean, I know the number of illegal immigrants affect our country. There's no doubt about it. I understand that election integrity affects our country, no doubt about it. Inflation touches every facet of your life. And since the government decided to spend money it doesn't have, Year after year after year after year, 
your dollar is worth less. And we're a free market economy. We're distorted. We're manipulated. We got crony capitalism, but it's still an economy that takes a certain amount of money to buy a certain degree of prosperity. Lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class. Every time the government borrows a dollar, your dollar's worth less. Every time the government chooses to deficit spend, you take a pay cut, period. That's the part I'm talking about. It's not just $33 trillion in the abstract. I mean, there's not some crazy number floating around out there somewhere. That money's in circulation. That money's in the economy. And and every time a dollar of that money makes its way into the cash flow of our economy, the M2 money supply, whatever you've got is worth less. And you're living a fundamentally, financially inferior life as a result of. That's the point I'm making. How many times do you bump into illegal immigration every day? How many times do you bump into election integrity every day? I understand what you're saying, and I accept those as important issues. You bump into inflation every single purchase you make in your life. From the time you crank your car up, it starts burning gas. It's a little bit like lower back pain. we got to say it in the country. You can't get away from it. I mean, when your lower back hurts, you can't get away from it. You can't get away from inflation. And government, Milton Friedman said it better. I mean, the private sector doesn't create inflation. The government does. So, so all of us living our lives with an expected quality of life and, and prosperity is it, just in precipitous decline. And I'm afraid it's going to fall off the cliff. I'm afraid if we make some of the adjustments or not. I mean, it's almost like there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a choice we got to make. You ready? Is the dollar going to be worth half of what it's worth or a third of what it's worth? But I think that's where we are. Mm. Yeah, those are good options, aren't they? Take a break. Back in a few. And this is where Republicans, the new right Republicans, and I'm talking about the America Firsters, the national conservatives, here's where we find ourselves in a quandary. When, I mean, I just told you that in the first CARES Act, Trump went to Pelosi and tried to convince her to not have a floor vote, but rather do it by unanimous consent. And, And both did what you would expect them to do. A Republican president trying to spend a couple of trillion dollars in government stimulus doesn't fly well with the base. Pelosi could get away with that. But there's no way Pelosi's giving Trump that cover. I mean, there's no way Pelosi would do that. She's going to make that president force the Republicans to vote and go on the record. But here's where the America First conservatives or America First Republicans find themselves conflicted. To me, one 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 of the best sets of remarks regarding the first CARES Act was Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. She called really? it a shameful corporate bailout. She talked a little bit about the, and I don't have the speech. We could play the speech. She talked about the payroll protection for small business was pittance in compared to the handout to corporate America. The Wall Streeters ended up with about, in, in the first CARES Act, I mean, it was done in tranches, but it was about $2.1 trillion. I mean, I've seen some summaries that say, about 1.3 of the 2.1 trillion ended up in the coffers of Fortune 150 companies, Fortune 200 companies, and that's where a lot of conservatives find themselves becoming anti-corporatist. I mean, the, the I mean, obviously the the payroll protection for small business was important. If the government said to small business, you can't operate, you, but you can't disconnect me from my employees. I mean, one day I hope to get back in business, and I need these good employees. So the government basically turned 
the small businessman and woman into quasi-unemployment agents. You can't run your business, but we'll pay them to not work with money we don't have. I mean, that's kind of an absurd scenario, but that's where we were. But Cortez was right. I mean, it was a corporate bailout. And if you, if the government's going to give away $2 trillion, I can, you can bet you, you ready? You can bet your sweet ass who's at the front of the line. And it ain't me and you. <laughs> I'll, I'll assure you of that. Now, now they gave us, you know, citizens a, a little pittance of money. Well, right? They gave Putting you some accounts. money and they gave you money and, uh, you know, just Santa Claus. I mean, the government Santa Claus. They've got so much money laying around, Rev. <laughs> but, but I want to go back to what, what Cortez said. The majority of money that went to the business community went to big business. That, that's the truth. And that's where we find ourselves as National America First conservatives. We find ourselves at times aligned with people that we historically don't have much in common with. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You know, Ken, that, that's exactly what I was thinking yesterday. And, you know, uh, and I'll tell you this. Uh, unless Franklin Delano Roosevelt taught the Japanese and the, uh, and the Bob and Pearl Harbor, he didn't fix their damn depression. And you look at what causes, causes usually causes depression is cheap money, too cheap of money. Money has no value. When you, when you have a, a 1% interest rate on money, that tells you the money's not worth much. If, I, if you're investing in something that gives you a 1% return, then that ain't much of an investment. You, you see where I'm going? I mean, so there's got to be a certain value associated with money, and money has no value. But, you know, you look at this thing, you know, you, you, you right now, the past two days, have told everybody who, who, was, who caused this. And you, and you look where the money ended up. And you look at who ended up with the power. Okay, well, all that money that was spent ended up with who? Rich corporations, right? Who became more powerful? Politicians became more powerful. Who was part of the, uh, uh, what, what, what's the name, what do you call that thing? The, 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 old, uh, the cathedral. Who was all in the cathedral? Who was all in Revelation as the enemies of all Christian and God-fearing people? Who has caused this thing? We know who caused it. And the people that caused it are not going to fix it. It's done on, I mean, they did this on purpose. But one of my questions is, the people that did this on purpose, your Black Rocks, your Vanguards, your politicians, Republicans, and Democrats, I mean, they may be educated stupid, but somebody in there is smart enough to know what they're doing, and they're doing, and they did this on purpose. So who in the hell is going to fix it? you got to bring somebody in that didn't, that didn't break it on purpose to fix what these people have done. And these people, and I don't know how to expose them, because very few people even have any idea what has happened to them, what they've done to them. Nobody knows. One of the smartest clients I have is a very wealthy man, very, very conservative, very, very knowledgeable of stocks and everything else. And he really didn't know much about Peter Thiel, and he wasn't quite certain what him to money supply meant, none of those things. And I didn't until yesterday. So the point is that we, the people are not educated, and nobody wants to believe me when I tell them who was lined up against us. Nobody wants to realize that all of these congressmen and senators are lined up against us, Republican and Democrat. All of these corporations are lined up against us. 
and they're doing everything on purpose. Like every, yeah, there are big callers that realize it. They want a ruling class and they want a slave class, a serf class. And we've got to find somebody that's willing to fight the people that did this. And like you said, and Donald Trump may be the disruptor, but he is not going to fix this problem either because he doesn't have any problem with the debt either. And, and see, the thing is, the debt, immigration, all those things are intertwined as part of their war plan. And we're sitting there trying to put out little fires here and there, but they're burning, but they're burning everything. And, you know, and we, and we're just so far behind, it's not even funny. And I don't see anybody really wanting to fix anything. You know, you gave the answer. If you can figure out how to fix this thing, kid, you don't think there's somebody over there that, that knows how to fix it, too? But thank, they don't want to fix it. Thank you, Breeze. But let's use this as, as an example. I was thinking about Breeze is talking. There's a lot here. And, and look, we, we, I mean, I know Jordan and Trump is a big story, but you can find that anywhere. I mean, in all honesty, uh, the, the biggest concern I got the spe- about the speakership today is does McCarthy authorizing the impeachment inquiry without a floor vote, but at the permission of the speaker stand? Look for a Democrat today to say, well, he's no longer the speaker, so we got to end the impeachment inquiry. Interesting. I, mean, I don't know that. I'm yeah. just thinking that you got to play chess here. Right. Okay, let, let's go back to what Bree said, guys, and what I just said. We, we, Reb and I joke with one another about football. Reb says, man, I don't watch it like you do. I mean, I don't know corner two or cover two and Tampa two and, you know, outside backers getting pinched by pulling the tackle and stunting the line. I don't, I don't that, that means nothing to me. I tell Reb, hey, man, when you go back yesterday to that room to fix the phone, I might as well be on the moon. <laughs> I mean, I, I have no idea what you're looking at, what you're trying to get. Well, I don't know what you're, I mean, I'm, I, that's so far to me. So we all have these degrees of specialty. But as an American citizen, guys, we owe ourselves to look at the football game a little bit differently and to know a little bit about the computer network that keeps me on the air. And and we, we have yeah. so much, and I, and I do believe this. I think the Seinfeld watcher is the key to our country. We've got to convince that Seinfeld watcher to turn Seinfeld off one, two nights a week and, and pay attention. Read something. Study up on something. Learn who will tell you the truth and who will lie and why they're lying and why they're, they're telling you the truth. I'm not saying everybody has to have a Ph.D. in college football or everybody has to have a, you know, a master's certificate in wiring and programming and computer technology, but we can't be morons about it. We can't be idiots about it. And, and we've kind of neglected that responsibility. Rev is very at home walking in that room and fixing that stuff. I'm on the moon. But when we go to williams Bryce, I have a pretty good grasp of what. I mean, I, I could see what was going to happen Saturday, two drives into the game. You know, my, my other people are going like, well, we're only two touchdowns. It probably ought to be four. You know, I mean, I see what's happening. They're killing you up front. They're stunting linemen. They, you know, we got to tackle, can't block. And anyway. We've got to be studious. We've got to be prepared. We've got to care. We've got to give a damn. I mean, I had a coach one time tell me a lot about being a good ball, good being a good football player. How big is you give a John Brown? I mean, either, either you do or you don't. And either you agree to participate in trying to understand things that will eventually look, it doesn't matter to me whether you like the CARES Act or not, whether you voted for the or believe in the CARES, know the CARES Act, understand the CARES Act. The CARES Act had a direct impact on your life. 
When you go to the grocery store expecting to spend 40 and spend 60, that's the CARES Act. That's the American Rescue Plan. I mean, nobody walks out of the grocery store saying, that damn CARES Act. That damn American Rescue Plan. I'm telling you, man, that thing really <laughs> screwed me up. You know what they say? I used to get buy $40 worth of groceries, and now it's costing me $70. Well, how long are you going to be ignorant? Don't you want to know why? Don't you want to know why when you go to the drive-thru, it's not 6 bucks, it's 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 now? I mean, aren't you interested in why? Is it good enough to snatch the receipt out the, the person's hand and be mad at everybody except who you should be angry with? There's a responsibility that we must carry. And we must demand better. And and how do we demand better when you don't we don't know whose fault it is? We don't know who to blame. We think it's the um we think it's uh, Pepsi Cola's fault. We think it's the grocery store's fault. You know, a Pepsi goes from a dollar nineteen to a dollar fifty nine. We're mad at Pepsi. We're mad at the grocery store. Uh, we're we're mad at the restaurant owner. I mean, they're they're gouging me. They're they're charging me sixteen dollars now for shrimp and grits, or twenty dollars now for a a ribeye steak. Well, I mean, they've got to make a profit. And all this inflation that was created by all this spending, that's why, Josh, I believe immigration matters. And I believe uh, election security and integrity matters. But nothing touches your life like the government spending more money than it has year after year after year. And you infuse $7 trillion of liquidity into an economy. And people who are responsible for making those decisions say the inflation we think will be transitory. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. And I chuckled out loud when somebody as educated, credentialed, and pedigreed as Yellen Yoda said, <laughs> you know, it'll be transitory. I said, no, it will not, ma'am. Please let me talk to you and explain to you how this thing works called the, the economy. But we've got to engage. We've got to care. We've got to invest. We've got to be prepared to understand some of these things. How do you hold people accountable when you don't know who to hold accountable? And you really don't know what happened. A good friend of mine sent me a text yesterday. And, and Bree's kind of barked up this tree a little bit. You know what the two most lucrative businesses in the world are? I'm asking Rev and Josh. I'm asking you out there listening. It's not a trivia question. But you know what the two most lucrative businesses in the world are and have always been and will always be? You know what? War? War and illness. How many companies have got unbelievably wealthy? On war and illness. What has driven the majority of our debt? Military spending. How much money did we spend in Iraq? Let's beat up on the Republicans for a little bit, right? Weapons of mass destruction costing American taxpayer how much? Trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. At least a couple trillion. Enormous loss of human life. The business of war won. What happened with the COVID? When, 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 when the pharmaceutical and medical care industry saw a chance to make trillions of dollars of government intervention, that's what they did. They did exactly what you do, what I do, what anybody. If I ran a military defense contractor, I would promote the business of war. If I ran a pharmaceutical company or I ran an insurance company, I would promote the business of illness. We talk about energy and and technology. They ain't baby crap alongside the business of illness and the business of war. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Josh gets half a prize. 
War and illness? Yeah, war. The, war. the business of war. He's saying, why half? Yeah, well, I mean, give them all, you, all the prize. You didn't give the other. Um, That's true. Yeah. But we, I mean, we talked a little bit about this yesterday off the air. And I, I just think these are, it seems to me, guys, and I mean, take it for what it's worth, but it seems to me there there's, I mean, the first page of the awakening was Trump, correct? I mean, in 2016. I mean, people, yep. I mean, if people were comfortable and settled and satisfied, there's no way Trump beats Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, um, you know, all the others. I mean, it's kind of a star-studded cast of Republican candidates. No way Trump wins that if people are content. See, th- I believe there's kind of a, a transitioning from, okay, I'm content, I'm discontent. I go from discontent to suspicious. I go from spish- suspicious. Now, there's not a lot of room between content and discontent. That's kind of a fine line. Um, Rev could be content today, discontented tomorrow, a little bit different. Sure. But all of a sudden, Rev kind of drifts off into this suspicious space. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if Mitt Romney's the guy or not. I don't know. If, you know, I mean, I don't know. If, and, and you started looking at Trump. And then and then you, th- there's a larger space, I think, in this linear graph from suspicion to defiant. And I think Trump was not. I mean, I think we had become so suspicious we were ready to be defiant. And the more they said, don't you vote for that carnival barker, the more we were inclined to say, don't you tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the very people I'm suspicious of. Right. You've been yeah. telling us this sure. and not delivering on what you promised. But but defiance is not a governing philosophy. You would agree right. to that. Defiance yeah. is, I mean, we can be angry and defiant and frustrated and bothered and I ain't doing that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I've had enough of that. I'll never do that again. But, but ultimately, we've got to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I mean, if we are a nation of laws, and I don't, I'm not interested in voting for a dictator or a king, are you? Ooh. Okay, I mean, we're going to have to legislatively work through some of these issues that we've created for ourselves, and I still believe that you guys have raised very serious issues. I mean, the southern border is a travesty. I mean, that, that's a sin against humanity to allow that number of people to come into a country that considers or claims itself as sovereign. We're not a sovereign nation. You can't look at the southern border and say, that's a sovereign nation. I mean, if you don't, I mean, you can't maintain your sovereignty if you don't have secure borders and police the people that, that come in and out. But, but, I, but I go back to, we, that's a fixable problem. I mean, I'm not, I didn't say it was easy, and I, I don't have any idea what percentage of illegal immigrants could we pick up and deport. I mean, 20% is better than none. 30% is better than 20%. But, but the debt is there. You can't unborrow that dollar. And there's no way to, I mean, we just, we don't, our, our economy does not generate the revenue necessary to pay back the debt, principal, and interest. It just doesn't, unless we begin modifying some of these other places, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, that we spend enormous amounts of money. Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning, Williams. Hey, um, Ken, Mark Millen and my man, um, what's my man, um, um, they call me, um, me down now. Well, you know, I'm not going to help you name somebody <laughs> you want to call out. <laughs> hey, 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 man, you know who I'm talking about. I do, um, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, they call, um, God, um, <laughs> well, well, whatever. <laughs> he once said, whatever. Trump calls the people in Arlington Cemetery. Losers and suckers. You know what I'm saying? You know who I'm talking about, right? I know who you're talking about, but Dad, you don't know. 
John Kelly. John Kelly. You got it. You got it. John Kelly. He was warning the American people. I want you to analyze the statement for me. Can you do that? Can you do it for your listening audience? Can you do it for me? What was telling the what was telling the American public? Go ahead and make that statement, man. What was you telling them? Well, you were telling them our American public. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. I mean, Kelly's accusing Trump of um, calling some of these. I mean, he didn't want to be he didn't want to be seen with someone who had their arms blown off or something, some sort of accident. Uh, well, I mean, that's not an accident. It's being in war. You know, he was a um, victimized in, in one of these wars, one of these endless wars that we seem to always find ourselves entangled in. Kelly and Millie, uh, you know, my, my opinion, they have an ax to, to grind. I mean, they, they don't like Trump. They never liked Trump. Millie went behind Trump's back and communicated with some of the uh, some of the Chinese authorities that kind of at his level in the Chinese government. Some say American that government. was treasonous. Well, I mean, I, I, you don't do that. Whether you like it or not, the president's commander-in-chief, he's a civilian commander of the armed forces, and you serve at his pleasure. I mean, you don't freelance and go do things without the president's, um, you know, it's just without the president's permission, to be honest with you, right. at that level of, of, um, of negotiations and, I guess, speak, you know, back and forth. But, um, I mean, I, I would hope Trump never said that. I mean, I would hope and pray. Uh, Trump says a lot of crazy things, probably more. He probably gets away with more of that than he deserves. You kind of agree. Yep. You, you and I have said a hundred times, that's Trump being Trump. Off the air, on the air. Wish he hadn't said that. Wish he hadn't said it that way. Wish he'd left that alone. I mean, he's guilty of that. But but that's kind of the era of a disruptor. That's who you're you're dealing with. But, but in, insulting and disparaging the men and women who have served our country admirably is there's no place for that. I mean, I, I, I'm not the president, and I'm not doing it. The president has more of a responsibility than I could ever imagine to make sure he always respects and validates what they've done and and just supports what, uh, you know, they've done and they've endured. I can assure you with this. The person that got his arms blown off, I mean, they, they'd rather have their arm attached to their body. But they did it serving the country, justly or unjustly justified or unjustified that's a fair debate you know should we have gone here should we have gone there how many men and women should have been boots on the ground there how many what what you're doing talking about ukraine now you know we're talking about i mean I, I think the the public are beginning to kind of buy into you know unlimited money for endless wars it's not about ukraine and putin anymore it's about the american taxpayer spending unlimited money on endless wars and and i, I just think america's like i don't want to do that anymore Things just don't ever work out the way we said we were told. And uh, but but I yeah, I mean Williams, I, I hope and pray that Trump never ever said anything like Kelly has accused him of. And I mean Millie, I think Millie's a different animal. Millie's shown over the long haul he has an axe to grind. He doesn't like the fact that Trump got elected. He never you know never accepted him to be honest with you as the commander in chief. Um, I mean did that diminish his career? That there's a big, I read something this week. Uh, there, there's a big, this might be in the American conservative. It's kind of a, um, it's a philosophical piece, if you will. But it's about the, the hierarchy of the American military today have never served in combat. Kind of interesting. More educated than they've ever been. I mean, the brass in the military today are more educated, have more degrees than they've ever had. 
I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And and we're talking about this generation, and I'm not, I'm talking about generals, and you know I'm talking about high ranking members of the armed services. How few of them have served in combat? And then you hear stories about kind of the focus of the military is more on wokest wokeism issues well, it, it, as it, opposed to fighting and winning well, I mean, wars. I, I read somewhere it's 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 not about the battlefield, but rather the Pentagon. You know some of the right. some of the some of the military slash political decisions made on the Pentagon hinder the ability of our military to do its job on the battlefield. That's kind of I mean I don't know that I'm I'm not versed enough in that to give a serious opinion. I think the economy and debt and immigration we can talk about that and I'm very comfortable there. But but I think you know I've not explored that world enough. I did read and it was kind of interesting how much more educated and less battle-tested the high-ranking military officials in our country are. What what do you make of that? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to make of that. I would rather have more battle-tested than I had educated military brass. Uh, I did a bit one day on this show, and I'll stand by it. We got too many young men in college and too few young men on job sites. I mean, I'll stand by that. We got too many young men in college, too few young men on job sites. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina, good morning. You're on. Hey, morning, fellas. Um, Ken, last week something you said, I thought about it after we got the phone, and it kind of it kind of hurt me. Uh, we were talking about 9-11, and you said, you and I believe Josh said, basically because your love for your country, your government, that you, in a nutshell, you're not willing to do the homework on the facts of 9-11 because you feel like that's ridiculous. Your country would never do such a thing to 3,000 people and this and that, whatever. I said, okay, well, you are a media outlet. So what's stopping other media outlets from feeling that same way about COVID, about other stuff, where they feel like, no, our government wouldn't put out a, a false um, um, disease and hurt thousands or millions of, of um, the American people. It just threw me off that you and Josh kind of said that y'all not going to do your homework not them because y'all refuse to go there and believe that your country would do that. In that case, then, that's every every situation that comes up in a government, a large, a large group of people are going to say that. I don't believe my government would do um, the, the, first, the first 9-11, mm-hmm. the second 9-11. COVID. It's a large group of people that, that feel the same way you feel about everything that you you don't want to talk about or discuss it because you feel like your government wouldn't do that. And that's kind of like ignoring the facts of what's going on. Like I said, the same people feel the same way about COVID. They feel like you lying about COVID because their government wouldn't do that. Their government loves them so much. Uh, one more thing. Are White people almost a minority now, because at least about 26 million Mexicans or Hispanics that came over the border. I mean, that's the real reason trying to do is, uh, you know, destroy the country, make y'all a minority so y'all don't have the, the voting power. But I was doing the math, and they're close to it. So y'all becoming the second minority over, you know, Hispanics. Is that true? It's getting close. Anthony, I can say this to you, and I'll probably get in trouble, but I'll say it anyway. I was talking to an African-American guy at the gym a couple of days ago when we were talking about immigration, and he said, there's going to be more of them than y'all are us. 
You know, and I mean, it, 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 I mean <laughs> the way he said it, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, in the gym talking about life and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Locker room talk. Yeah, but he said, he said, damn, they're going to be damn more of them than they are y'all. us, are y'all, you know, put together. And you need to stop this stuff and stop this craziness. Anthony, I'll say this, and, and that's a fair point. How can I believe that my government would be behind allowing a, 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 a virus to make its way into the population and not believe that it's capable of participating in flying two planes into two buildings. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, I, I can't get my arms around that, but, but I believe the government to some degree. Thank you, Anthony. We got to take a break. I do believe the government is to some degree complicit in the, in the, in the pandemic. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm convinced of that. To what degree? I don't have a clue, but I'm convinced we've never been told the truth about what the government knew what the government didn't know, what the government funded at the Wuhan Virology Lab. But I can't get my arms around believing that the government of the United States of America knew and allowed two planes to fly into two buildings that killed 3,000 innocent people and changed, I just changed the country forever, forever and ever and ever. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. During the break, you were talking about uh, well, politics and Trump. And, and you said if he would pick someone to run with that had certain qualities um, related to the economic understanding and ability, um, that that would serve him well. And I, I just think that Trump has an, a chance. I mean, we know what he is. He's a known commodity. He, he's a disruptor. He is a, I mean, he's a business guy. He's rough and tumble. He's a nonconformist. Uh, he's bold. He's a lot of these things that we find very, but he's not detail-oriented. And for somebody to uh, deal with the budget, it's going to take a, a degree of methodical detail. I mean, it, it, you got to be getting up every day. you got to sit through boring meetings. you got to look at charts and listen to dissertations and understand the complexities of government finance and budgets and I think if Trump found somebody, I don't want an economist. I, I don't want an, uh, an economics professor from Harvard. But, but if, if he could find somebody of sound business principle, not of a political, well, it could have a political background, that's fine. But they cut their teeth in business. They made their way in business. They understand the value of a dollar. They understand budgets and bottom lines. And, and farm that out to him. Make, make it very, very clear to the American public. Look, I'm going to do what I do. And I'm going to run the government like the best way I know how. But, but I'm not the kind of guy that sits in a room for six hours and, and goes over budgets and, and goes over spending and understands where we can cut and where we can do better. But this guy's going to be, this lady's going to be my vice president. And here's their credit. Carly Fiorina would be somebody. I mean, okay. I, I know she's a blast from the past, but I mean, she's that sort of person is what I'm talking about. Somebody who cut their teeth in business, understands the private sector. Um, and is patient enough to meet with whomever, chair the Senate Finance Committee, chair the Ways and Means in the House, and, and say, here's what the president's offering up. Really and truly, here's what I'm offering up. The president's given me permission. I think that really puts him in a better place. I think the one people, the one thing people are concerned about Trump is his attention span. I mean, the guy, you know, kind of has an attention span of a kid. And I think he knows that about himself. I mean, he moves on to the next and moves on to the next. I think he retains a lot. I mean, I think he remembers a lot of these things, but but it times his life and his campaign and his political or his politics, they, they get a bit chaotic. 
He's too busy fighting a judge and, a, and an attorney general in New York to really be paying attention to the minutia of a budget. And I just think if Trump found a businessman or woman who has serious credentials in budgets and money and finance, and, and, and Trump announces to the public, I'm going to do what I do, and you guys know why that is. Some like it, some don't. But here's my vice presidential candidate, and they're going to be specifically tasked with this, the budget, deficit spending. They're going to spend every waking moment trying to understand how to cut the budget, try to understand how to curtail spending, try to understand how to reform entitlements. And this person, um, I mean, Paul Ryan was a little bit of that, but he was too entrenched. I mean, he was too tainted by the system. I mean, we know that because he became a lobbyist and, uh, you know, an insider and all these. I mean, he was already that. We just thought he was something something else. Um, but, I mean, he did dedicate a lot of his attention to the budget. I mean, when he was speaker, he understood the budget, and but he understood it from a political perspective. I think an extension of the business world, step into the VP's office with Trump's blessing as, you know, budget guru, that, that sets – that, that lets Trump go do his thing. Immigration, trade, China. You know you miss <laughs> the way he says China. I saw that on the bumper. Yeah, China. Um, <laughs> but, but let that other person, man or woman, wake up every single day almost obsessed with the debt and deficit spending. I mean, you're nodding your head. You're like, okay, yeah, I mean, I, I, no. that, that kind of makes sense to me. Sure. It's such a big deal. And you can't trust the OMB. I mean, you can't trust the you know you can't trust the ways and means or or finance committees. I mean, you just can't. They're not going. I mean, do you really believe in forty one days they're going to come with a clean spending bill? I mean, do we really believe that? Of course not. I mean, they're going to have another CR omnibus. Uh, it's going to have no entitlement reform as part of this. It may have a little bit. Depends of, on who the new speaker is. Well, I mean, maybe. See, and I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the impeachment inquiry. I thought about that last night. I mean, I was awake laying in the bed, and I'm going like, okay, McCarthy gave them permission, because he can. Pelosi set the precedent when they impeached Trump to not have a floor vote. I didn't want to put certain Democrats in certain districts on the record. Um, McCarthy didn't have the votes to have a floor vote on the launching of an impeachment inquiry to, to Joe Biden. Does Can the Democrats now say, well, he's not the speaker any longer? I mean, you guys replaced him. They're going to try to play that game. I don't know what the legalities of that are. And I don't think anybody sitting in the studio would know mm-hmm. what the legalities maybe, of those maybe are. Maybe the new speaker could reauthorize it or something like but that. I mean, well, okay, but maybe could could the interim speaker do that? Yeah, don't know. If, if a Democrat went to the floor today, I mean, they're in recess, but if a Democrat went to the floor next week and said, you know, I make a motion to, to uh, deauthorize the impeachment inquiry, who on the other side says, well, I'm the speaker and I authorize it and I authorize it again? Because, you're, you know, my predecessor chose to do the same thing. I don't know how that would work. I mean, there, there's a parliamentarian that'll get to make that decision. That's an interesting question to me for the parliamentarian. Can the impeachment inquiry continue if a Democrat says, I'm asking, I make a motion to deauthorize, and the parliamentarian looks for the speaker, and the speaker's not the speaker anymore, and that was the speaker that authorized the impeachment inquiry without a, a House vote. I just don't know how that how that plays itself out. Now, interesting, Trump toyed around, and that's all he did, toyed around with the idea of being speaker, but yesterday gave a, uh, a an enthusiastic endorsement of Jim Jordan. I don't know how that affects the I mean, obviously, it's to Jordan's advantage 
I, I do believe this about the Trump, the Trump factor. And I think we said this before. Trump being for you is one thing. Trump being against you is something else. Trump was for Russell Fry, but Trump was against Tom Rice. And Trump being against Tom Rice was a lot bigger deal than Trump being for Russell Fry. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I know that's a weird way to look at it, but I think the Trump factor is much more magnified when he's against somebody or something than if he's for somebody or something. I am curious as to what you think about Jim Jordan as speaker. He's a firebrand, and firebrands normally do better when they're loose and fast. The speakership is a confining position. I like Jordan chairing judiciary. He can be that firebrand, and those guardrails are pretty expansive. When you step into that role of speaker, I mean, you're the most important guy in the building. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but but I just think it kind of confines and restricts some of the influence you can have. So, some of the optics of what he does. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We got one of our three amigos. That's probably insensitive, but I said it anyway. We got Jay Jordan here, <laughs> house member of our delegation, as John Fetterman <laughs> likes to say, but I don't care who is in here. I don't care if three's in here, four or five in here. Anytime somebody's trying to promote something in Pamplico, they get to the front of the line. And right now, Pam go. Turner from Pamplico is here to talk a little bit about the Pamplico Cypress Festival that is this weekend. Pam, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you doing? I am doing well. So warn people beforehand about the enormous amount of traffic that is on <laughs> just on, on an average day in Pamplico. It, it's, uh, it's a mess as far as traffic goes, but I got to believe there's going to be an even bigger problem this weekend because you guys are hosting the, the Cypress Festival. What is it and what can people expect and why should they, why should they um, tour uh, Pamplico as they visit the Cypress Festival? Well, this is our 19th annual festival. Uh, we closed down Main Street, and we actually closed down parts of Pamplico Highway on Saturday. But we have rides. We have um, our Master of Ceremony, Danny Lockamy, there. We have a car show that usually has about 101 um, cars. They're called Palmetto Cruisers. Um, and this year, we have two dance studios driven by dance. KFA Dance Studio. We have 26 food and craft vendors lined up down Main Street. Um, so you, they have all kinds of food, all kinds of crafts. And this year we have the Warren P Band. Um, he actually finished number eight on American Idol this year. So we're excited about him coming. He's coming from Bamberg. So um, we're very excited for that. But we usually have around fifteen to 2,000 people through town, which is huge because you know we're a small town. Yeah. So, it's, so, so Pam, it's tonight and tomorrow, right? It's tonight and tomorrow. It starts today at 6, goes through midnight. And then tomorrow it starts at 10 and goes through 6, yes. And you can eat and listen to music and look at cars and have a big time just kind of um, making a day of it. I think the weather's going to be that's, real nice tomorrow. right. Oh, it's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be, and and the best part is it's free. There you There's go. No admittance. There's no admittance to this festival, um, so you know it's free, and you can come and enjoy yourself, bring your family, and bring your chairs, and sit around and have a great time. There you go. Thank you, Pam. Appreciate it, and good luck tonight and tomorrow. Thank you, Ken. Thank Bye-bye. you. So, um, you know, giving a shout out to the old hometown. There you go. There, right? Yep. 
Well, when I say I'm a college dropout, what's down on the stop line? Uh, a buddy of ours, Nick Cremitis. I don't think Nick would mind me saying this. So Nick's the president of the South Carolina Realtors Association. He's been on the show before. Nick texted me a month or so ago and said, there really is no stoplight. <laughs> so well, I wouldn't make it up. Yeah. He said, well, who knows? I mean, there really is no no stoplight. There was a flashing light. The caution but, light doesn't count. Well, I mean, we don't. No, there's not even a caution light any longer. We reconfigured <laughs> some of the mass transit system that was required to get people from point A to point B. So you had a caution light, and now you don't. Well, I mean, you lost your caution light. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the our equivalent of the Duke boys went through town one day and didn't quite fare so well with, with the light. And the rest, as we say in Paris and Pamplico, is histoire. Um, do we have a call? Uh, we we got Representative Jordan here. We may chew the fat on some of this national politics. And um, these guys are in the dormant period of uh, the General Assembly. Not a lot going on this time of the year. I would imagine some bills and, uh, I mean, the caucus will get together and set priorities. And then some bills will get filed, you know, later before we get into session, but it's kind of a, um, I don't want to speak for Jay, but it's normally this time of the year, uh, kind of a resting period before you guys get back to work. That's right. It's an opportunity to get caught up on all the things you've neglected back home. Uh, you know, we are a part-time legislature. We're not like the federal government that it's a full-time, you know, $200,000 a year job, uh, far from that. So, it's an opportunity to go back home, get to work, pay the bills, spend make some time enough money to not make any money when you're in the, in <laughs> put, the general assembly, put the hay in the barn. If you can. <laughs> I, I, I've heard that over. And, and I can tell you this as somebody who ran a truck body business, it was hard. I mean, it was really hard to tend to your business and do what you needed to do in uh, in politics. Let's go to the phone. Someone there, Jim and Sumter listening to WDXY this morning. Hello, Jim. You are on the air. Morning, Ken. Uh, just, just out of curiosity. I mean, maybe you could educate us. Uh, uh, a half-brained uh, person from Sumter, um, as a, you know, as a person who comes from what I thought was a small town, and then I drove through Remini and I missed it. Um, <laughs> you know, I I know the history of you know Sumter General Thomas Sumter. What the hell is a Pamplico? It was one of the the baddest <laughs> Indian tribes you could ever imagine. It okay. really was. I mean, it was. It was an, it, it's, it's kind of an. I mean, I don't know the exact history, and there's some tall tales and urban legends, and you know how that goes. But um, yeah, it, it's it, it kind of um. I mean, the Great PD River is a big part of Pamplico tradition, so to speak. And I mean, it, it's it's some of where the Indian settlers and some of the early colonists kind of settled. Um, and and I think from what I the, the association of a of an Indian tribe led to the name uh, Pamplico. Interesting. You know, I was coming back from uh from from the beach, and I actually saw a sign that said Pamplico this way, and I was so tempted. But after <laughs> after a week at the beach with my family, I said, "No, nah, it's not worth it." <laughs> it's not. No, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. It absolutely is. Appreciate the call. Thank you a lot. Uh, you know, I'll say this: we went to. I'm thinking about my brother and my dad, um, our wives. There may have been a couple of others with us. We loaded up one day and went to, uh, we went to Chattanooga. I think there was some place that we wanted to go see and stay and do and whatnot. And and I, you know, I'm a big race fan. Rev knows that I'm a big race fan. And um, you like a car race. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I do like a car race. <laughs> and um, we leave the beach. And I was like, what time is the car race coming up? Because I know we're gonna lead up beach by that car race is on. So uh, so anyway, um, we get we get going down the road. And we, we left like Chattanooga, we're coming through wherever, and we get to a place where there's a sign, 
And I don't remember the truck. I mean, we went from there somewhere else and somewhere else and driving a motorhome. And uh, there was a sign that said Dawsonville, 18 miles. You going to see Austinville? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And, and so, so I convinced the people, and they're like, no, 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 no. Let's not do this. It might have been 18 miles, but it was the windiest. <laughs> And I understand now why Bill and Chase Elliott are good um, road course drivers. They had no choice. Right. They rode out of Dawsonville. But, but, be, huh? but anyway, we um we rode 118 miles to go those 18 miles and ended up in Dawsonville, Georgia. And uh, we saw the pool hall and the race shop and, you know, and that was it. I mean, it was a pool hall, a convenience store, and a race shop. And, um, I mean, I think it's grown a little bit, a little bit since then. But many small towns have been near and dear to my heart. I mean, they really have. I, I am proud and I, and I tell Jay, Jay knows this, Jay and our good friends talk a lot off the air. Um, I, I believe that we're in danger of losing rural America because people go where hope and optimism reside. And it's hard to be hopeful and optimistic about gainful employment and job opportunities. I mean, the economy and, and, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, uh, Josh was with us. Why the intrigue with Trump? I mean, we'll make this political. What, what is it? I mean, I don't get it. The guy breaks rules and laws and, you know, he talks in a way that nobody ever has. I said, yeah, but th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a nation out there that believes the people in power have forgotten them and their plight in life and their concerns and, 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 and what they care about, what they believe in. And I think Pamplico is, is a represent, kind of a representation. I mean, there's a million Pamplicos around America, but it's kind of a, um, I mean, that they, and I'm not saying Trump wins Pamplico 90-10. <laughs> Probably wins at ninety five five, but um, <laughs> but 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 I I do believe Jay that that Trump touched a nerve with those people in rural America who believe that trade deals were bad, globalism has been bad, um, you know the the factories that had three hundred employees are shut down and grass growing upside of the building, and I don't know Trump's the fixer, but he spoke those people in a way that they listened, an expression of frustration is probably the way I keep coming back to. And I get that, you know, as someone, if you grew up in Florence, like I did, everyone was connected to that small town. You know, my, my dad was born in Evergreen. And then, um, when he was a young boy, they moved to the big city of Timmonsville, you know, all within Florence County, but still those are not, those are, you know, so, so there's always th- this connection to now. We're Crossroads to, with a name is what we call it. Exactly. So now you're getting to a point in time. We fast forward, you know, a generation and there's just not that same connectivity to the rural South Carolina that there used to be. It used to be um, what your grandparents do. What ninety ninety nine percent of the time they were farmers. If you go back, you know, a, a couple a generation or two. So you have this group of folks that I think that we used to be all connected to, who were the we always say the fabric of the nation. You know, they're the heartbeat. They're the they're what makes us unique and special and good and they have a right to be frustrated because they haven't been treated right and fairly over the last generation or two. We've benefited the the metropolitan and the big cities and uh, all those places much more so than we've paid attention to um, the rural America. You know, and at that point, Red's heard this. We can't play it over the airways, not that he would let me anyway. Um, Springsteen's from New Jersey. There's a certain word that people from New Jersey say <laughs> Just off the cuff, I don't think they even know they say it, and um, and it's not, it's not allowed on terrestrial radio. But but Springsteen says that we all have a love hate relationship with our hometown. I mean, everybody does. He said I sang my entire career 
about getting away from here, born to run. You know, it's a death trap. It's a suicide. I had to get out while I'm young. He said, I currently live 12 miles from my hometown. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but there, there is something about, I mean, you know, I tell people home is two places, where you are and where you come from. I mean, I, I believe that. I mean, home is not one place. It's two. Where you are today is home. Where you come from remains home. And I think, I mean, you and I have talked about this. Your father's influence, my father's influence. A, a lot of that influence was shaped by these very, very small town views and uh, kind of a creed that those people lived by and trusted in. That's exactly right. And you can't get too far away from the, the core of that being, you know, spiritual in nature. Um, you know, go back to my family. Um, I can remember going to Timmonsville for church all the, when I was a little boy and it wasn't something you, you missed. It was a serious part of your life. Um, and then, and, and I think that directly connects to, um, this rural South Carolina, you know, and, and to your point a minute ago about the concern that we're losing that touch, I, it's absolutely a valid concern. I remember looking at it during redistricting. We're, we're not too far off from the big cities, uh, controlling the state. And th that's one of my big fears going forward is you're going to end up where we're watering down the influence because the population's not there on the rural parts of South Carolina that are the good and decent, and I'm not being overly critical of the sure. big cities. It's not that, but that voice, we cannot afford to not hear that voice. That's very well explained. Let's do this. Let's take a break. I want to stay there because I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about the future of South Carolina. We talk a lot about the future of America. I mean, we're a state, uh, you know, federalism is kind of sort of alive and well in some regards, but I want to come back and have a conversation about the future of South Carolina back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Representative Jay Jordan is with us. Had an interesting kind of a setup in the last segment. Jay, I argue that the the central issues facing America, I mean, there are a lot. Immigration's a hot topic right now. Uh, but, but I believe over the long run, uh, 10 years ago, 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about energy and debt. I mean, that, that those are central issues, macro issues that elected officials at the federal level better develop a plan to get serious about you, you're you're part of governing south carolina let's set aside the federal for a second and talk specifically about what you perceive to be the two three or four things about south carolina that you think will lead to a better way or a less than better way well unfortunately i don't think you can separate out the federal government it, it is such um, a problem in recent years for us that that probably is our number one issue facing South Carolina is restraining the federal government is dealing with the things that the federal government pours over top of us. Um, so, you know, the federal government, number one is probably our, our single biggest issue. Um, secondly, I would, I would say based on some of the things we see in Washington, I'd say um, the danger could be us becoming more like the federal government. You know, there's a tendency if we're not careful for us to slip into the traps um, that we see on Fox News and become more like that. So I'd say that's on the list of things we need to be weary of and watch out for. Um, population growth. We continue to see growth in certain areas, as we've talked about on, on the show here many times before, how we deal with that growth and and process that growth and how we you know, um, build, our, build out our infrastructure is going to be key over the next decade here in South Carolina. And then while it's a 
national issue. I'd say it's also a local, a state issue, and that's energy is going to be a big deal here in South Carolina. As we grow, the bottom line is we don't have enough energy infrastructure to support the growth models that we're on. Scare us as much as you're comfortable with. I mean, I know some of the realities, and Jay knows I know some of the struggles. And, I mean, along with growth comes demand, and you've got to be prepared to meet that growth with demand. Um, I mean, I know that's a challenge, but but talk a little bit, uh, elaborate a little bit on that dynamic and, and why it's concerning. Well, so we've grown a lot, as everybody knows, uh, over the last 10 years, but we really haven't invested in changing our energy infrastructure in the last 50 years. There's not much um, that we've done by way of, of increasing the our ability to turn up the volume on our energy. So as the uh, need the consumption goes up the ability the production hasn't really has not caught up i mean it was just last year we got very close to some um rolling blackouts that should concern everyone the other thing is what you've everyone's seen their energy bill go up um so those things are not those things don't happen in a vacuum those are cause and effects that how are, how big a part was the fiasco uh the nuclear plants in cross how, how far behind did that set us i mean i know they've I mean, they've not disclosed how much money it really cost. It cost far more money than they've said it cost. I get that. I mean, there's a little politicking in that. But 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 how far behind? Now let me let me back up. How much did that impede our ability to be what we need to be five, ten, fifteen years from now? Oh, it had it has a tremendous effect. I mean, should we consider pursuing that project again? Is that even on the table? Is that a viable option? Not that project. That project is gone and done and over. Um, huge mistake. Huge mistake. You know, look at it this way. You're trying to build a house and, you know, halfway through the house, you find out it's going to cost four times what you think. And so you, you give up on the house and now you got to go figure a way, place to live and pay for that. But you still have to pay for the calamity that is the house you were trying to build. That's kind of the situation we're in times 100. Um, I think we're going to have to look for better ways for forward uh, with our energy. We're going to have to look, you know, try to divide it up more into parts of the state and come up with production ideas for the regions of the state. Santee Cooper is going to, is going to be in the middle of that discussion moving forward. You know, there was a, a long discussion uh, over the last few years about does South Carolina need to be in the energy production business by way of Santee Cooper? Um, ultimately uh, it was decided that Santee Cooper would not be sold and it will be a state asset moving forward. So the bottom line is we are in the, in that industry. And so we're going to have to figure a way to do it right. There's a debate in Washington. I do want to go here for a second. You would know there's a debate in Washington about who the next speaker is going to be. We had a motion to vacate and by God it passed. Um, and now we're looking mm -hmm. for a new speaker. Jim Jordan gets the endorsement of Donald Trump. Um, Steve Scalise, we believe is a little more pragmatic, less of a firebrand, Explain to people why the speaker matters. I mean, you're in the house. Why does the speaker matter as much as I know the speaker does? The, the speaker, you know, the buck stops with him for purposes of the house. You know, who's who that speaker is um, controls more things than you can than you really see. Give us an example. I mean, you're an insider. Most of our listeners aren't. Give us something about the speakership. That, that matters that most people wouldn't have or be aware of. Well, let me do this since I'm not a member of the house. I can tell you some of the ways it works in Columbia okay. and a lot of Fair those enough. ways transfer over. But for instance, in Columbia, the speaker, he gets to determine what committee you go on, which is a huge issue. You know, um, I, I've seen it happen in years past where the committee, you know, the chairman of one committee gets the letter and find out he's not even on that committee anymore. You know, so that, that speaker has a tremendous amount of leverage over, um, that's probably the biggest 
um, issue for a member of the House is what committee you're going to go on because that's how you are going to be able to impact the legislation that you care about, your constituents care about, and that comes through the process is what committee you go on. So if just that's one example right there that the speaker can control that issue. And if the speaker, if you get on the bad side of the speaker, you get off the ways and means on the historical marker um, committee. Oh, I, I <laughs> remember it's not quite as prominent as other. I mean, that really is what led to Nikki Haley's ascend in politics. I mean, Bobby got mad with her. Speaker Harrell got mad with her and put her on some of these back row committees, and she got real ticked off and, and grandstanded and off to the races she went. I was about to use that as an example, you know, and the way I wasn't there at the time, but it's it's urban legend, so to speak, so I've heard the story many times, you know, uh, Representative Haley, soon to be Governor Haley, is sitting in the committee, and, and the speaker's attorney brings in the the letter. <laughs> it's, it's not a phone call. It's not a hey, can I talk to you in the hall? It's a here you go. Here's the letter for you. She opens it up and finds out I've been transferred from one committee to another committee, and she has to pack up her stuff right there at the table and and leave. Um, that would upset me, <laughs> and I think just about anyone in that position, and it drove her, um, gave her fuel that she decided uh, she was going to go on and be governor. But but you would agree, I think, and if you got time, you got a chance here to kiss butt, and I'll, I'll tee this up for you. <laughs> uh, we broadcast in Sumter, and um, our, our, you know, Jay Lucas from Darlington was the speaker for a long time. Merle Smith is the speaker now over in Sumter. To me, and I know both, they're, they're not – as driven they're not as i don't want to say i mean bobby was a bit vindictive and i think people know that by now but it seems to me that jay formerly merle currently are more interested in the fraternal nature of the caucus of the republican supermajority you know and and bear in mind i showed up right after the the speaker harrell situation where he had to resign and so you know, literally that was, I think, six or eight months old when I showed up in Columbia and Speaker Lucas, um, I'll, I'll tell you. They anyone, threw him out right after they threw me out. <laughs> two different situations, <laughs> two very different situations. Um, but, but you know, I came home, and I'll never forget, and I had a T-shirt or a cup that said South Carolina House Republican Caucus. And at that time, one of my kids said, what's a caucus? And I thought, how do I explain to, you know, a, a seven-year-old at the time what a caucus is? And I thought, you know, the easiest way is that's that's the team I play for. And that was the atmosphere that, that then Speaker Lucas and now Speaker Smith um, really prescribed. You know, at the end of the day, I always tell people if you're running for office and somebody gets up on the microphone and says, I'm running for the legislature or for the Congress and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to get you this and I'm going to change that. Well, the reality is you got to convince a whole lot of other people um, what, what you're going to do because it's really not what you're going to do. It's what y'all are going to do. It's more than a few to pass or stop legislation. And so if you don't have that team concept and, and atmosphere, um, you're going to end up back to what we're seeing in, in Washington. You're going to end up fighting amongst yourselves, trying to jockey for position, either fighting that team or within that team. And if you don't have a strong leader like now Speaker Smith, you're going to end up with chaos. Is it fair to say that the relationship you have with the Speaker dictates how effective you can be as a, legis as a legislator? I would say that's a fair statement. You know, the speaker, you know, he, he's sort of the captain and he's going to help you figure out what the, what the issues we're going to jump on and how we're going to jump on them. Um, in my experience, you know, if you take an issue to the speaker, it's kind of like uh, going in the boss's office and say, we got a problem here. You're probably going to end up on the team trying to figure out how to solve the problem. So be careful taking <laughs> problems. I found out out in the Senate, the, the senators that identify problems end up tied up in trying to figure out an answer to, uh, why did you bring it to? Because it's a problem. Yeah, but I didn't say I wanted to be a part of fixing it. I was doing a good job of identifying. That sounds like a radio show host.
Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. Representative Jay Jordan is with us in the studio. If I'm not mistaken, Mike Rickenbaugh texted yesterday and said he was out of town, couldn't make it today. We'll be back next week. If I'm not mistaken, we've got Representative Lowe on the phone. We do. Okay. I think, I think, well, I I think he's at an anti-gun rally somewhere in San Francisco. (laughs) Is that correct, Representative Lowe? Well, I'm standing in the middle of a of a field we're getting ready to hump just put our decoys out 22 degrees about a 10 mile an hour wind and i'm, I'm real close to heaven okay good deal well um <laughs> I, I would say kill one for us but i don't know what you're shooting so i'm gonna be careful about saying kill one <laughs> Phil, yeah. Phil, we, we we asked jay a second ago and i want to get your take on this we asked jay a second ago how important it is to have a working relationship with the speaker and how important the speaker is because we're, we got a situation in Washington unique from what we normally have, but but you you've been there a good while. I mean, why why does it matter to have the respect of the speaker and him respect you? Yeah, he's got basically all the power of appointment. So if you want to be on a good committee or something that that you'd like to help do, having that relationship where you can reach out and, and volunteer and, and I hope he picks you. It's, it's incredibly important. It's important to have a good relationship with your desk mate, Jay Jordan, and your entire delegation too. So it's, it's a teamwork type thing, but you know, anytime you're up there, there's, it's every man for himself at some point uh, when that, that power ladder starts moving and you're trying to get to a spot. So the speaker is the key to that. Jay also talked, and I want to get your opinion on this. Jay also talked about one of the challenges facing South Carolina in the future is affordable, dependable energy. Uh, we made a big mistake. The general assembly didn't, but the state made a bad investment and things didn't work out. Um, do you agree with that? And, and, and what is the plan to make sure we're, um, we're adequately prepared for growth via, um, having enough energy? Well, we, we are involved in energy now, of course, because of Santee Cooper, but you know, the, the private providers, the Dukes and all these folks, uh, are, are fighting to provide enough for the future. And we have enough growth in this area. If we don't, actually look forward and probably go with some small nuclear type plants i don't know we'll have industry searching to come here we'll we'll be like california because everybody's moving here and and uh, we're not at the brownout stage but if you're not planning ahead you're going to get there jay is that i mean is that's not across the state i mean that would be in certain pockets certain areas i mean i understand we got a statewide energy grid but but we talk about this imbalance of growth, this and, and, and nobody can make somebody live where they don't want to where they don't want to live. I mean, um, I don't I don't see how there's anybody left in Michigan or Ohio. I think they're all in Pauley's Island. Uh, but but anyway, is it is it is there a plan to provide power to sp- ah, specific high growth areas? Well, you talk about growing pains, and, and that's one of the growing pains. You know, I can make a list. If you're living down in Horry County, you probably sit in traffic more than you want to. Uh, energy is a part of that. Um, energy is not something, um, or I go back to Phillip's point. I think that is the the way to tackle this is to regionalize it. So you can put these smaller nuclear facilities that are much different than they were 50 years ago into areas in our, across our state to, so that they can adequately service the demand for that region of the state. And Philip, let me ask you this. If, if, if smaller nuclear plants are the answer they're going to be federally regulated. How important is that relationship with a Senator Tim Scott, with a Senator Lindsey Graham? Well, I, I don't know if that's as important as who's in the White House. Uh, I think they're going to lead the, the energy policy through 
you know, through their own agency that they control. So, you know, they you don't hear a lot of talk about nuclear from the from the Democrat side. So, if if we're going to go down this small nuclear, you know, I think the Republicans will probably have to lead that, while the Democrats lead us into wind and solar. You want to jump in here? I was just going to say, Philip's one hundred percent right. Look at look at, for instance, I mean, energy as a federal issue, immigration. It's a federal issue, and as as the White House can determine, uh, one day we don't have a problem, uh, and then now all of a sudden we need to go back to building a wall, according to President Biden. Um, and this this whole time, the nation and the the border states have been suffering tremendously, based on the lack of reaction to a very real problem by by the federal government. So too is an, could be an energy crisis. So so what can the General Assembly do to protect our state from illegal immigration? Is there anything we can do? Well, there are things we can do, but I'd say the most, the number one, two, and three thing is we can hope and pray and work to make sure we have the right person in the White House. You know, that's going to be the issue. Because that's a federal issue. Oh, 100%. And, and it, it's, it's an issue that people can polar, their polar um, positions on across the spectrum. Um, you saw, you know, that's one of the things Democrats always say, we don't need a wall until just now they say we need a wall. But that's going to there's a there's no there's not a lot of middle ground on that issue either we're going to stop people from coming over illegally or we're not philip do you worry about what happened in washington this week i mean a lot of your lives are predicated upon who the president is who's in charge of the senate and the house um are you concerned at all about the ah the the chaos that that surrounds kevin mccarthy and now jim jordan and steve scalise appear to be the front runners for the speaker in congress you know I never like to see a situation where a small group of Republicans band with all of the Democrats. That That's not a good way of governing. But listen, if it gets us to this discussion that we're going to have to have and some, some, some budget cuts, stop this spending, try to head towards a balance in budget. I don't think you can do it in one year because the whole world would collapse probably. Uh, but here's the thing. You get through all of that and you get – to the end result, whatever they do in the House, the Senate isn't going to go along with. So you throw the Speaker out for something that you cannot get through the Senate, what have you done? I mean, you can bring it up. You can get, you can find out who's voting with you. That's, that's good information. But the Democrats aren't going to vote with a, a more conservative uh, leader in the House and putting out bills that are so ultra-conservative that the Senate won't even consider them. So it's a, you know, until you take over the House and the Senate, and truly the Senate by 60 votes, until you get to that point, you you can't run ramshot on anything. So I I think we're, I, I don't know what their final plan is, but you got to win the White House and you got to take over the Senate and uh, and get a, a upswelling of, of grassroots, of, of people voting conservatively this time to make a difference. So you know, we, we got a balanced budget once when Clinton was in, but he didn't ask for it. it. You know, it was Newt Gingrich that did all that work in the contract with America. So that's where we got to get to, where America demands a balanced budget. Uh, let me ask both of you this last question. And Philip, I appreciate you joining us. Philip is uh, in a hunting field somewhere far, far from home. Jay is sitting in front of me. But but I want to ask you this, Jay, and I'll start with you because we're kind of eyeball to eyeball. So I argued this morning that if you want Jim Jordan to remain a firebrand, and the bulldog that he is, advancing the conservative cause, you probably don't want him as speaker because there's a little more conformity 
that goes along with that. He's got to play more team ball than be the kind of the bulldog that goes and gets him on this issue or that issue. Fair or not? I think it's fair um, in that in the speaker role, that is more of a management managerial kind of situation. A little more diplomatic? Yeah, probably so. Um, On the other hand, um, we always talk about how bad off the federal government is, and at some point we have to truly shock the system. So I wonder, do we not need a firebrand? You know, that, that ultimately is the, the, what, what we got in President Trump. You know, the, the, that frustration we talked about a little earlier in the show, um, you know, Donald Trump was an expression of that frustration to try and shock the system, to disrupt the system. You know, if, if the message didn't come through loud and clear as a result of that in 2016, you know, maybe maybe someone like that is necessary to shock that system. Philip, Jim Jordan's a bulldog. Would he be a good speaker? Well, he'd be a, a, a fun theatrical speaker. I mean, I think you'll create situations where, you, you know, you're going for home runs. And you can't get them through the Senate. So you better figure out how to hit some singles to, to win some ball games here. I'd, I, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love for Trump to win, and I'd, I think Jim Jordan would be fun to watch. But I don't think it – greatly affects what the Senate's going to do. It, it, the key is the Senate this year. We've got to take it over and keep the House and win the presidency. Well explained. Philip, thank you for your time, my man. We'll take a break. Jay, you'll be back with us for a couple of more minutes as we round up or wrap up this hour. Uh, we'll talk to Philip next week in person, I hope, unless he's traveling the world trying to kill something else. Um, <laughs> I, I'll assure you he ain't at a uh, a gun activist <laughs> seminar in, in San Francisco, he's California. A, he's probably in a spa getting a massage. <laughs> I bet he's not. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to do what, Rev? Make Fridays. Make Fridays. Um, With us this morning is Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz in our nation's capital. We're not talking about Braves. We're not talking about the Orioles. We're talking about who's on the short list of candidates to become the next Speaker of the House. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? And happy uh, Friday. We got college football and baseball on the same day. How's that? Yeah, I bet yes. Ole Miss doesn't get 711 yards this Saturday. Uh, well, we'll see. Yeah, Arkansas <laughs> usually plays us very well, no matter no matter who the better team is. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of parity in the SEC around the middle of the field, and that seems to be where Ole Miss might be a little better than middle of the pack. Arkansas probably is uh, bottom to middle yeah. of the pack. So, so, um. Something happened late yesterday afternoon or last night that may have an impact, will have an impact in some way, shape, or form, and that is Donald Trump endorsing Jim Jordan. What does that change, and who else is on the list? Right. So, yes, I mean, this is a substantial endorsement in many ways. You know, Trump was the number one. uh, There were members who were pushing Trump to run uh, for Speaker of the House, but now those members look like they're going to be falling in line and backing Jim Jordan the way that the president is. Now, of course, uh, Jim Jordan still has a tough test here because, you know, Steve Scalise, who is the House Majority Leader, is also running too. And this is somebody who's well-connected within the party. He's considered to be a very strong fundraiser, and he might be a little more appealing to some of the moderate members uh, compared to what Jordan is. But it is important to point out that Jordan has gotten the endorsement of a good portion of the moderate Republic, Ohio Republicans so far. So, you know, that, I think that's the first step is winning your own state delegation, right? Yep. Ryan, is it fair to say, I've got a theory. I want to get your opinion on it. My theory is that Trump being for you is one thing. Trump being against you is, is, is another thing. I mean, I, I would, I mean, him being for does move the meter, no doubt about it. Him being yeah. against 
it is a real big deal. And I've not heard him say anything disparaging about Scalise or anybody else. No, and it doesn't look like he's against Scalise the same way he, was, he wasn't against McCarthy. He actually endorsed McCarthy and wanted everyone to get on board and back him. So I, I wouldn't be shocked that if, in fact, you know, behind closed doors, Republicans elect Steve Scalise over Jim Jordan, uh, that, that Trump just says, hey, look, you know, he won. Let's let everyone move on. It's certainly, you know, that's kind of going to be the kicker to see if we're going to have a long drawn out speakers race or not is if, you know, the candidate who gets the most votes, if the candidates who don't get the most votes, but still get a good portion of the party support, if all of those members just decide to vote for whoever decides to for whoever wins the majority and move on. If not, and if there's people who rebel, then we're in for another long week like we did in January. Yeah, and I would give advice to both candidates. Don't make 20 deals with 16 members. You wake up every morning on yeah. the edge of a razor blade. So um, I, I yeah. think there's a lesson learned there. Oh, yeah. And I think there was a journalist yesterday who was saying to make sure you record all the promises that are made to you, and then you can leak it out <laughs> to the press or something like that at a later date. There, there so, you go. Right, Ryan, thank you, and go O's, go Braves. Absolutely. Have a good one, sir. Thank you. Do the same. Guy's a Baltimore Oriole fan. And a old Miss Rebel fan. Um, I don't know how you get there, but but he did. Um, I, I go back to the odds. Uh, somebody tweeted yesterday about the fracture in the Republican Party rev and said there's a DeSantis Trump. This guy works for DeSantis, and I'm going like that right. would be like saying there's a Georgia Alber or excuse me a Georgia, Georgia Vanderbilt fracture in the SEC. <laughs> there may be a Georgia Alabama fracture, but they ain't no Georgia Vanderbilt um, fracture. It's just silly. Time to decompress. You ready? Yeah. Time to decompress. We have with us Jason Priester of all Clemson Tigers with an S dot com. Um, Clemson cleaned it up this past weekend, um, played well and looked like they were, I don't know, kind of ready to move past what happened in Death Valley a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Kind of looked like the team we expecting them to look like coming into the season, right? Yeah. A lot of clean football, complimentary football, aggressive on the defensive side of the ball. Quarterback still putting the ball in mm, icky situations. Got away with one early. Yeah, here and there. I think that's something you're going to have to live with with him. I think he's a gunslinger type kid, and I think he's going to he's gonna put it in the cover sometimes, and that's just one thing you're going to have to live with and, and hope they don't turn into what they have been turning into, pick sixes and, and scooping scores, and you can kind of – minimize the damage off those mistakes but yeah they 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 look really good saturday for the most part got some receivers starting to step up that rotation getting figured out um try to build some momentum against a probably pretty bad weight forest team this weekend and that's a funky place to play uh you know i've always said i mean kentucky's been our snake bite i mean it's just been a place that we go there and stink it up even when they're not very good and we per- we're pretty good but but syracuse is just one of those places that clemson has had always the better team but but they struggle to get out of there with a win. Yeah, four of the past six have been decided by six points or less. They beat Clemson in 2017. Um, they have been a thorn in Clemson's side. So it, it was – you wanted to see them come out and kind of set the tone early, and I thought they did that on the opening drive. I thought they shook Garrett Schrader from the very beginning, and he never kind of really covered, recovered. I thought he played rattled all day long, and it, it worked out to their benefit because he, he made some poor decisions in that game with the football that, that led to some Clemson points. Yeah, made some mistakes. And I'm telling you, I don't care who you are and where you play. If you win the turnover battle, you got a chance to play. I mean, you really and truly do. Um, that's just such a – that's the great equalizer. I mean, you know, you got a talented team, a less talented team, but if the less talented team takes advantage of turnovers, next thing you know, there's a there's a dogfight brewing. 
And that's been kind of Clemson's issue this year, turnovers, right? right and last not, game of last year. And I not mean, creating them. You yeah. know, you, you, you lose the turnover margin, you're putting yourself in a bad spot. And Clemson's not only had been losing the turnover margin, they have been those back-breaking kind of mistakes that pick sixes, scooping scores that lead directly to points. And, and those are the kinds that put you in a hole in, in a hurry. And that's exactly what happened against Duke. Um, it happened early against Charleston Southern. They were down 14 to seven. I mean, it, it was just kind of a, something that snowballed on them and, and it was starting to become more of a trend than a fluke. And you get worried when it becomes a trend. Let's shift gears and go to something that happened this week. I don't know if you saw it or not. You probably did. Um, the Utah football team, all 85. Did you see that ref? All 85 <laughs> players on scholarship received a free car. From their collective, their NIL, no, all 85 that. players, really? scholarship players, received a free automobile as part of a collective NIL auto dealer. I mean, there's some dealer out there, a big supporter of Utah football. Uh, another example of the changing landscape of yeah. college athletics. Not just a automobile, big trucks. Yeah, Dodge. $60,000 trucks. <laughs> 60,000 nice. times 85. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it was not it was not a cheap endeavor. Um yeah, it's an example of things to come. Um I think a radio station might have sponsored that thing and and got in on it somehow, but it's, it's six-month leases for all those kids, and, and the only thing they have to pay is the taxes. And as long as they're on scholarship and want the vehicle, they're able to renew it. And, I mean, the, the only downside is parking at the football facility. <laughs> yeah, everybody's got a new truck wow. now. Yeah, it's, it's pretty right. wild and crazy. So, so, Jason, are we any closer to knowing the negotiations Clemson is having with the Big Ten, SEC, ACC? I mean, you do this for a living. Well, what do we know now that we didn't know last Friday? I don't know anything now that I didn't know last Friday. I, I've heard nothing different. I, I still, one of my best sources telling me, tells me an announcement's coming in October. So we'll see. Um, I, I think something's coming. I just don't know the, the when or the where I think it's coming soon, you know, probably before the end of the season. You know, I saw yesterday, the big 10 announced they're going to a nine game conference schedule. The SEC, I think is waiting on, I mean, it's all about the money. You know that it's all about, how much more Disney is willing to pay the SEC for a ninth conference game? In other words, there will be more people interested in Arkansas playing Florida than there will Arkansas playing Murray State. And it's all about that ninth conference game, and Disney's kind of sitting tight to see what, you know, the SEC decides to do. But there is, I mean, there, there's, there, there's, I mean, we're, we're heading to a different sort of arrangement in college football. Will the ACC survive in the some way, shape, or form? In some way, shape, or form, maybe, but well, what not. Do you, what do you see the ACC looking like? I mean, if Jason Priester said in this studio five years from now, what is the ACC? I see a break coming from, from the NCAA, like 40, 50 teams, maybe 60. I don't know the number, but go off, do their own things, and, and the rest are kind of left behind. I see the ACC basically as a group of five leagues, you know, no more, no less. So, okay, so stay there for a second. Clemson plays Wake Forest Saturday. Wake Forest has a pretty decent program. I mean, they really and truly do. I would argue that a value, I mean, if you're looking for a value proposition stock by Wake Forest football, they overachieve as much as anybody in America. You're nodding your head. You deal with them every year. you got to be careful with them. There's no reason that Wake Forest should play Clemson close. I mean, there's just no reason. But they do. 
And they don't just play Clemson close. They play Notre Dame close. They play Florida State close at times. They are the consummate overachiever. Where do they end up in this new arrangement? Because they don't have the big collective in NIL. They don't have the big football budget. They don't have the big alumni and fan base. But we really kick Wake Forest to the curb and say, you know, you can't play here. you got to go play over there. Dave Clawson was talking about that this week, how, you know, they, they have to – they have so little NIL money to work with. They have to kind of focus it on certain guys on retention. They can't use it in recruiting and talked about how, you know, we wanted almost every guy on that roster talking about Clemson's and we didn't get any of them. Matter of fact, we had one as soon as Clemson offered, he, he was gone. Um, you know, I thought he was taking a little bit of a shot at Khalil Barnes there, but that's another conversation. Sure. Um, I, I don't. I I could easily see Wake Forest being kicked to the curb, and that's just the reality that we're living in. Is it right? No. Are they competitive in football most years here under Dave Clawson? Yeah, they've even you know played for ACC championship not that long ago, maybe two if I'm not if I'm remembering that right. But um, they've had some success under him. They they were pretty good under Jim Grove back in the early 2000s. Wake Forest is what ultimately ended up being the nail in Tommy Bowden's coffin. Mm-hmm. He used, they used to give him fits, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of those that I could see being left out when this thing, when all the dust settles. Cause I think there's going to be some teams in the ACC that, that do get left out that maybe we weren't thinking we're going to get okay, left out. Let, let's put our thinking caps on you and I are king of the world. We're king of the football world. Clemson and Florida state are kind of one and the same. I mean, they're, they're, they're brands in college football. Uh, there's an attraction to them being in your conference because they bring some notoriety and name and, and some husband. All right, but, but let's go to the state of North Carolina. If the ACC falls apart, it becomes a, uh, you know, a not, not a non-power five league. What happens NC state and the university of North Carolina? I think North Carolina, it'll be fine. They're, they're one of the bigger brands. I think they'll be one of the first. But would out. you agree as a Clemson fan and writer, um, that North Carolina and Notre Dame are the biggest brands out there. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, I could easily I can make that argument. Yeah. Um, so so what happened, but Notre Dame is kind of half pregnant with the ACC. That they've got some some discretion. They're not a member in football because they got this TV deal and they can't give up all that money. Believe it or not, back to money. Um <laughs> we're always back to money. It's always going to be back to money. Why why is the SEC not announced nine games? Because they're waiting to see what Disney will pay for that ninth game. So so where do you see North Carolina going? I don't know. I, I've thought about that a lot. I could see them ending up in either one. You know, they kind of, their academics and stuff kind of align with, with the Big Ten, but I think I think they ultimately end up in the SEC. I don't know. I, I, it's just a feeling I've got. You know, I, I really do. Um, you know, you never say never again. I think some of the, you know, philosophies academically is particularly line up with the Big Ten more so than the SEC. But, but the, the way the SEC's put much more of an emphasis on basketball the past, you know, what, five, ten years, whatever it's been. They've gotten a lot better, and North Carolina would just fit right in. You know, maybe their football team wouldn't compete with the big boys, but but they're good in a lot of other sports, and they'd be very competitive. And you're talking about a state with 10 million people. The SEC doesn't have a footprint. I mean, that that's a bit. Clemson's attractive. Florida State's attractive. But the SEC has a footprint in both of those. They don't in North Carolina, and it's about 11 million people that become more familiar with your league. It just culturally doesn't make any sense. I mean, to me, go to the Big Ten, NC, North Carolina, come to the SEC, Clemson. I mean, the culture lines, the fan bases are kind of sort of the same. And I just think 
we're going to regret the day. And I'm a Gamecock, and I want the advantage. I want to stay in the SEC. I'd like to see Clemson the ACC and them struggle for the end of time. But that, that's not where we're going to end up. I want North Carolina to go to the Big Ten, Clemson come uh, to the SEC. But I'm not king of the world. In a perfect world, that's exactly the way it will work out. But I'm not sure we're living in a perfect world anymore. I'm, I'm sure we are. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's start a rumor, Jason Priester. You ready, Dave Baker? No, I'm ready. We're going to start a rumor. Let's hear it. Rumor is that the Gamecocks and Tigers hadn't signed a contract to play in 2024. Oh, that's not a rumor. Hmm. Really? Oh, so the Gamecocks and Tigers have played 5,000 years in a row since cavemen. I mean, Adam was a Gamecock and Eve was a Tiger, I think. But um, but they've not signed a deal to play next year. And if the SEC were to go to nine games, and they probably will, why? Moolah and Disney. So if the SEC goes to nine games, do you really want to play Clemson? And if Clemson bolts to the Big Ten and plays a Big Ten schedule that includes Oregon, Southern Cal, Ohio State, Michigan, do you really want to play South Carolina? Am I, am, I, am I way off base, Jason? Absolutely not, especially when you get to the nine-game conference schedule. And I think what further we get down the, further we get down the right road, we're going to go to a 10-game conference schedule, and then even more of these out-of-conference games are going to get squeezed out. And I think if these two teams end up in, the, in different conferences, this game's going to be in trouble in a few years. That's Ooh. crazy to believe. Wow. But if Clemson – I mean, tradition, I, come on. Well, I'm going to make a prediction. Tradition doesn't trump money. Never Nobody does, never will. tradition uh, anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, love that marching band, Rev. Yeah. <laughs> and they're putting money in the bank. I mean, that, that's just I the way it. it is. I get but, it. But Jason's saying it now. I mean, stick with us here. So if the SEC goes to nine conference games, and if Clemson joins a league other than the SEC, I mean, if Clemson joins the SEC, we're good. I mean, they'll be conference. They'll be in the same side. There won't be sides, but they'll be in the same league. They'll honor that. I mean, they'll play every year to the end of time if they end up in the same league. But the SEC goes to nine conference games because Disney pays money. The Big Ten's already playing nine. Clemson joins the Big Ten. There's a less than 50% chance that Clemson and Carolina play in the year 26 or 27. I think it'll make it this year and next. But but I, I have serious concerns about after that. Oh, I think it's fine short term. I think it'll get signed and played next year and the year after that. But once we start getting to 26, 27, 28, I'm with you. I think they're, if they end up in two different leagues, I, I think you got big time concerns that that game might go away. Well, I mean, I, to your point, I, when you go from 9 to 10, you'll eventually end up at 12. I mean, they'll, they'll eventually, the NFL doesn't play any out of conference games. And, and what Jason has talked about, what I'm, what I'm saying is this is going to stop being college football. I mean, this is going to be the farm system for the NFL. I mean, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, the Florence Blue Jays. I mean, you remember all these uh, right now. The Flamengo. Well, they're not a farm scene, but I mean, it, the, the the the. I mean, it's going to morph into something other than the Big Ten and SEC, and and it'll be called. I mean, I, I, Nike or Amazon or somebody will buy it. It'll be called the the Amazon League or the Nike League. But you think that's where we're headed, and I do too. Oh yeah, I think we're going heading for a complete break. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to be 40, 50, 60 teams. They they go all, all, all off on their own, do their own thing, and payers are going to be getting paid salaries. You're going to have players, unions, all that good stuff, NFL light. I don't know what it's going to be called, but it's coming. The big, the big break, Rev, is going to be when the player is not called a student athlete but rather an employee, employee. and right. collective bargaining and contract negotiations become a part of this. Now, now the, the other scenario, and I've read some things about this, some of these schools will say, okay, we can't go there. We don't have any interest in going there. We can't 
make our school and university something it's not. Football tryouts at 1.30 on Saturday afternoon, and the best 45 make the team. You know, th- there will be a return to true amateur athletics, and I would imagine some of the Ivy League schools may do that, but there's too much money there to blow that up. Oh, agreed. I, I think there's going to be some schools get left behind, and you'll see those kind of fall back to the traditional model, and, and the rest are going to go off and, and make all that money. Let, let, let's talk about this Saturday, and I think it's in Death Valley, if I'm not mistaken. Wake Forest, not as good as they have been. Uh, when I saw the skate, I mean, I'm a game cocker pull against the Tigers. I don't hate anybody at Clemson. I, I mean, I ain't no hater. Animus, or I just pull against them because they pull against me. And I feel like I got to return to favor. <laughs> so when I look at the game, I say, is it in Winston-Salem? And is Wake Forest having one of those up years? Because if it's in Winston-Salem and Wake's having one of those up years, they're going to be a handful. This isn't one of those years. No, it was last year. It's not this year. Um, Sam Hartman's not walking back through that door. He's up in Notre Dame <laughs> right now. And, and that's the difference, Maker. You know, the new quarterback, he's a redshirt sophomore. He, he's thrown six interceptions already put the ball on the ground five times already only lost two of them but you know he, he's fumbled it five times sacked like eight times in their last game the offensive line's porous that that defensive front for clemson's kind of starting to round into form they're a 20 and a half point favorite for a reason and to me the only question is whether they cover that number or not let's talk about a local player something i've observed and rev accuses me of watching football different than others it looks to me that local guy done good Xavier Thomas is in better shape but he might have lost too much weight and he's getting pushed around a little bit on the run plays am I seeing something or is that just me trying to be you know a game caught pulling against Clemson no you're 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 not imagining that I, I've said the same thing I thought he's played much better the past two weeks really against Florida State I thought he got healed all day long thought he played well last week but no there have been some examples where maybe he's getting pushed around and kind of lost in, in run defense um, that that there's a reason why that true freshman T.J. Parker's played as many snaps as he has, and the other starting defensive end has, because he's been the most productive of the three, um, and he's going to keep playing more probably as the season progresses. But you know, XT he, he looks like he's starting to round into form as a pass rusher and kind of what but I he thought. But he lost a lot of weight. Didn't yeah, he, Jason? Did. he did. He he's in excellent shape. I mean, he lived in the weight room after that injury last year, but he did. He lost some weight. He he's he's down a little lighter than what he. I, I want to say he's. I can't remember. I don't want to say a number because I'll get it wrong. But, but you'll get pushed around in the run game if yeah. you lose too much weight. Absolutely. And I think I think we have seen that at times this year. Okay. Clemson, a 20-and-a-half-point favorite. Do they cover? Is that a fair line? Yeah, I think it's a fair line because I had a hard time predicting whether they were going to cover or not because I think it's going to be right on that line. Yeah, I think they're going to cover. I think it's going to be a slaughter. Let's um let, let's go to a game that, that we, we probably all are interested in, Oklahoma and Texas. Um, you're a Clemson fan. I'm a Gamecock. I'll agree. The sport's better when Texas is good. I mean, they're a big brand. Uh, it's a little bit like Ric Flair. People like to pull against Texas and pull for Texas, but people pull one way or another uh, for, or, for or against Texas. Oklahoma, Texas in, um, I think it's in, what's the Red River? It's in Jerry Jones Stadium, right? It's in Dallas. In, in the night one of the world, I think, whatever they call it. Whatever Jerry calls it, we call it. So um, what, what do you make of that game? Big game for Brent Venables. I don't think very many Oklahoma head coaches have started out 0-2 versus Texas and survived very long. So I think this is a big game for Brent Venables. I think he's got that program turned around and headed in the right direction. I have always questioned, you know, some some assistants don't make great, great head coaches, and I've always wondered if he'd fall into that category. I think it's too early to say one way or the other yet, but 
I do think this is a big game for him. Man, Texas is rolling right now. <laughs> they're favored for a reason. It's it's gonna be hard for Oklahoma to beat them because I don't think they're. I don't think Venables has them quite at that point yet where he's got enough of his guys in there to run what he wants to run on defense and be the defense he wants to be. How much does Clemson miss him? Tremendously. I mean, he's the best. He was the best. He was the best defensive coordinator in the country. I mean, I don't think there's any argument about that. Um, I think without him, you probably don't have two national titles because they won those on the backs of those defenses. We can talk about Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson all we want to. But, man, holding that Alabama team to 16 points in 2018, nobody saw that coming. If you'd have told me that going into that game, I'd have never believed it. But, yeah, I, I think they miss him tremendously, and that's not a slight on Wes Goodwin because I think he's he, he's done fine for the most part. But that defense is falling off a little bit. It doesn't play with the same swagger. doesn't play with that edge or with that fire. And I think some of that comes from came from Venables. His personality. And, and, and Wes Goodwin – as nice as he is, as great of a guy as he is, he's not that guy. He's not that fiery guy on the sideline. They've they've brought Mickey Kahn, who is the co-defensive coordinator. He's always been up top in the booth. They brought him down to the field this year. Kind of a lot of people haven't realized that. Kind of give Goodwin some help down there this year. And I think they did it after the Duke game, too. So it didn't start the season out that way. And I think that defense has really played better the past two, three weeks. I think it's made a difference. Um, I think I think Goodwin's going to be fine. He's just not Brent Venable. Yeah, very few are. Very few are. Nobody, and, um, no, nobody would have filled his shoes. Yeah, and 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 he's got a um a chance at a signature win. But as Jason said, it's a tough place to get your signature win. Thank you, Jason. Anytime. Always a pleasure. We'll take a break. Hey, people can follow your work how? AllClemsonTigers.com. On Twitter, at JP underscore Priester. Good deal. Take and, a break. And you can hear him call yeah. the games on the ESPN radio in the Florence area. Who, That's right. Who, who you have tonight? Beginning the city championships tonight at Wilson, South Lawrence, at Wilson Homecoming. And that's what station at what time, Rick? It's on the 96.3 ESPN radio in the Florence area. Good deal. Take a break. Back at 7 o'clock. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? They're trying to do everything to this man that they can do to break him. But you know what? It is a good thing that man is not in charge and that God is. The Bible plainly states, whether anyone believes the Bible or not, that he raises up rulers and he brings them down. She's talking about Trump, by the way. Oh, I I figured that. But my question is, who is they? That would be such an interesting exercise. I give Rev a sheet of paper that says they. I get a sheet of paper that says they. Jason gets a sheet of paper that says they. Josh gets a sheet of paper that says they. Um, and you can't just say the deep state. No, or the I, mean, I, I want to know who they are. Right. I mean, you don't have to name them by name, but I mean, is it the CEO of BlackRock? Is it the CEO of Pfizer? Is it the head of the World Economic Forum? Is it the head of the FBI? Is it the head of the FBI? The DOJ, is it your own the Attorney Powell? General? Sure. I mean, so, so the um, if they has twenty spaces, who are they? Who are these people that we refer to as they? You know who they are? Uh, I kind of do. I think I do. I have a a general feeling about who who they are. But but nobody would agree. It would be interesting. The Venn diagrams of you know who on Rev's list would be on mine. Who on Josh's list would be on Rev's list? 
who on 100 callers or listeners out there who had compiled a list of they, the 20 people. <laughs> Mystic Cathedral is what it is, but who are they? And where do they reside? And what do they do? And what do they have against Trump? And wasn't Trump one of them for a long time? Until he became one of us? That's the biggest mistake Trump made. Hanging around with the hayseeds. <laughs> Hanging around with hayseeds always gets you in, in trouble. It really and truly does. Hey, Ken, I don't know how much the debate you listen to, but Ramaswamy is the only one talking about the unconstitutional powers that the United States has grabbed, the federal government. Nikki Haley was talking about pass a bill, pass a law. Look here, if you're going to govern the American people from the federal level, you have to pass a flipping amendment. Well, I mean, that's if you believe in the Constitution. And I think, you know, the left today in America has no problem at all violating the Constitution. It means very little to them. I mean, if the Constitution is not ironclad, I mean, it, there's a fair debate to be had about the living, breathing Constitution, but, but it's not violation of the Constitution. I mean, I'll accept that debate. And to some degree, Rev, I could go there. I mean, I do wonder what the Constitution would look like if it were drawn today or drafted today. I mean, it was not, but but the, the theory of the Constitution is to limit government. And the things that they do that grow government and give government more control and more punitive abilities, I mean, that's a violation of the Constitution. I am more than willing to debate textualist and originalist and, you know, living, breathing constitutionalists. I mean, I think there's a fair debate. Now, I think there's... <laughs> Some people pay a bit loose with that uh, living and breathing. You know, um, what does the word is mean? You know, it depends on what the definition of is is. Uh, but but, but I, I'm fair. I mean, I think that's fair game. Do you agree with that? I mean, would you agree that there's a fair debate to be had about this living, breathing constitution that, that you know, Jefferson, what Jefferson, Hamilton and Madison and all would have probably had a little more, a little different opinion about things today than they had back then. I would be okay with talking about that, but not until we are adhering to the current Constitution okay, fair enough, first. Fair enough. We are in the American political left today has no problem at all violating the fundamental bedrocks of our Constitution. None. Zero. I keep seeing this commercial, I don't know if y'all have, uh, this woman complaining that if Donald Trump is nominated or elected, excuse me, nominated, he will not be able to defeat Joe Biden. They keep saying, she keeps saying that uh, she's tired of all the drama and stuff. And and to me, the drama is just created by the Democrats. All this is created by the Democrats. Just think what would happen if they had worked with President Trump. How successful, more successful we would have been. That's, that's interesting, but you know, that's, I mean, it's when, when there's so much establishment mindset and, and beliefs and processes and procedures are so entrenched, a disruptor's not going to get his way. I mean, I don't think most people never expected Trump to transform the way we govern. I mean, did you? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a big ask. It's too much. I mean, it's asking the impossible. I think we voted for Trump because we knew that something needed to be shook at its core, and more likely than not, he'd do that, and he did. And I the mean, old he, way wasn't working. Sure. Now, now, and I've said this, and this is kind of, you know, this is where we get a bit philosophical. I think you're asking too much of America first to expect it to happen as quickly as we'd like it to happen. 
You're talking about powerful, powerful institutions that have amassed enormous influence and sway over our lives. And you have to decide, too, what it is you want to train. I mean, what, what is what do you want to see on the other side? Well, because we could say, yeah, let's tear it down. But do you really want to tear it all down? And well, I mean, what would you build back We've up? done a lousy job at that. Exactly. I mean, I think we've done a great job. I think Jeff made an interesting point this week. And this is what you wanted? I mean, it is kind of what you wanted. You wanted unprecedented. You wanted disruption. You wanted chaos. You wanted a speaker vacated, you know, with, um, what, eight Republicans and the rest of Democrats. I mean, this is kind of what you said you wanted for things to be the things that we consider to be normal. We want it thrown away, right? I mean, we want to see kind of a um, a political upheaval in action. Well, I mean, we're getting that. I just think we've done a lousy job of, of deciding where it is we want to go. We know we don't want to stay where we are. We, we know we don't like this current the, the current situation and circumstance but but I, you gotta you gotta have some destination I mean what is the North Star of America first to me I've given it on a bumper sticker it's it's to provide policy that that makes a better way for the American worker American family American way of life that's a bumper sticker I mean you got to go a lot deeper than that um we're spending too much money okay what's the next sentence to that? How do we address spending too much money? I want policy that promotes and advocates for the prosperity and advancement of the American worker, the American family, the American way of life. Okay, that's good on a 15-second campaign ad. But you got to have a lot more than that, and I don't think we've done much of that yet. Ramaswamy and DeSantis have probably done more of that than anybody. And Trump's at 60% of the poll. (laughs) You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. I'm getting a lot of texts about college football. There's a big appetite in our audience for athletics. I mean, I'm convinced that the Braves play the Phillies, Tomorrow, mm-hmm. I think they got the evening games, if I'm not they mistaken. They do, 6.05, so the, yeah. 6.07, something like so, that. So, so the Braves in prime time, um, you know, we, we, we discussed this during the year. The Braves killed the Phillies. I mean, they killed the regular season. They had an unbelievable regular season. But when them and the Phillies line up tomorrow night, guess what it is? It's alt-alt. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's no gains to no gains and no runs. But the Phillies did have to win a series. I just steal something about that. It's almost like I'd rather be the wild card. I mean, I know you chance losing the series, but you play in that game. You stay in that routine. And the Braves hadn't played baseball for a week. But they've been playing, you know, warm-up games, yeah, I guess, but I, all week. I, I, they've I done just, their best to recreate. Because they, they believe that's what yep. failed them. And, and when, when they, you know, just kind of take a week off and you rejuvenate, but you're not playing baseball. You're not playing baseball. I think it's better to be playing baseball. Um, it's just so wild that the the Braves beat the Phillies, lap the field in their division. But if the Phillies have a hot pitcher or have a good night at the play tomorrow night, all that good work. Uh, now, I think the Braves are better than the Phillies. I think they've proven they're better by one of the 162-game season uh, the way they did. Good luck to the Braves. Uh, I would say good luck to Clemson, but I've always been honest. So. I- <laughs> You know, hope nobody gets hurt. How about that? Hope there nobody gets injured at the Tiger Wake Forest Candy Bar. You got some trivia music, Josh? Yeah, time for our Takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. 
Dick Butkus passed away yesterday. Uh, I was watching with my youngest son, and I said, I remember when he played. I mean, that's how I know I'm getting old, because I remember Dick Butkus as one of the fierce, just, I mean, one of the meanest, nastiest competitors that football has ever known. I've kind of just just rebranded the position of linebacker. The one thing people don't understand, Butkus was mean and nasty, but he was athletic. I mean, he was extremely athletic. Um, I got a trivia question about Dick Butkus. You ready? And the first correct dancer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Where did Dick Butkus play college football? Where did died at 80 years old? Great bear, one of the greatest bears ever. He and Walter Payton kind of come to mind when I think of all-time great Chicago Bears. Where did Dick Butkus play college football? Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Hello. Hey, turn down your radio. Yeah. You're, on, you're on the air. Maybe not. Going once. Let's go yeah. to the next line. Hi, you are on the air. You know the answer? Hello. Hi, you're on. Southern Illinois. Say again. Southern Illinois. Ah, nope. That's not right. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Hi, you're on the air. What's your answer? University of Illinois. You're right. The University of Illinois. I don't know if it's in South Illinois or not, but it's not Southern Illinois. Yeah, he played linebacker at the University of Illinois, ended his career with 374 tackles, and that record stood until 1976. He was the 1964 Player of the Year in college football by the College Football Coaches Association. Who is this and where are you calling from? That's Robin from Florence. All right, my man, thank you for listening. Thank you for calling. Thank you for getting the answer Correct. That somebody didn't have the radio on and the delay may have cost you, yeah. you know, a million dollar buy. You know, we tried. Lottery ticket. I don't know. <laughs> Not a million dollar lottery ticket, but a six pack of Pepsi product right. and a couple of um, takes Mondays to make Fridays t shirts. Thanks to Pepsi. And I mean that sincerely. Thanks to all of our sponsors, all of our listeners, all of our callers. We've had a very um, roller coaster kind of week. We talked about a lot of different things at a lot of different levels from a lot of different. Um, angles, I, I still go back, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll go back there um, first of next week in the debt. You know, the debt situation in America is dire. Uh, I'm going to try to illustrate it the best way I know how with some of the reading and um, kind of plundering around the Internet that I can find some information that I think will help enlighten people. Um, but, but I just think we got to take time to better understand some of these issues, be more informed. Um, I mean, Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, George, they matter in the grand scheme of things, but none of them saving the country. It's up to us to do what's right by, you know, future generations in regards, in regards to our debt. Um, appreciate you listening. Uh, how long we got around? Okay. Yeah, 10 you, you're counting me down now. I appreciate you listening. Enjoy your weekend. And um, we'll have a new speaker by this time next week. If we don't, the Republicans made a big mistake. Enjoy your day.